That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Well, Damian Lillard is preparing his return to Portland. How do you feel about that? What would you say to Dame if you found yourself in a uh, downtown Portland elevator and he stepped on on Wednesday afternoon? Blazers hosting the Milwaukee Bucks Wednesday evening at Moda Center. What would you say? What would you say to Damian? What would your thoughts be? What would you be thinking if you didn't? I want to know how you feel about it. I want you to get it all out on today's show. Lillard is making his triumphant return or painful return, depending on how you look at it, to Moda Center. Blazers, Milwaukee Bucks. But Damian Lillard, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, will be announced by the public address announcer at Moda Center. And he's sure to get a strong ovation, standing ovation. Most expect it will be that. But his legacy in Portland, for me, is a little bit of a mixed bag. Great player, fantastic memories, 37-foot shot. I'll never think of the number 37 or measure off 37 feet without thinking about Damian Lillard sticking that shot right in Paul George's face to end that series. And the call of that, just a fantastic call as Lillard hit the game winner. We did a big play-by-play segment the other day, and it was was one of the – benchmarks i think when you think about portland city history that series that game the catharsis that blazer fans felt in finally getting over the hump in finally winning an nba playoff series remember they had been mired and stuck in the first round uh you know ended that night with that 37 foot shot and lillard waving goodbye to paul george and paul george afterwards saying you know it was a bad shot remember all of that uh frankly uh, I thought Brian Wheeler had a f- terrific call in the Blazers radio network. Lillard now out front against George. Five seconds. George backing up. Lillard doesn't want to pick. Dame going for the win. A three-pointer for the game. Yeah! Kevin Calabro, not bad on TV either. George will defend Lillard. Spread floor. Lillard with 47 tonight. Working it down to two to one. A deep three. Oh! Yeah! Blazers win the series, a walk-off three from Lillard. Damian Lillard from way downtown. I don't think Damian Lillard is the best player in Trailblazers history. I think that distinction has to go to Bill Walton. Certainly after Walton, I I would uh, offer Clyde Drexler, who took the Blazers deeper into the playoffs. But I do think about that shot that day as the greatest shot in Blazers history. It's iconic. Lillard talked about it 
uh, when he went on the Dan Patrick show that following day. Yeah, I so I was, I mean, he was in front of me, and I was looking at the clock, and the clock was going down, and it was like a lot of space between us. And I was like, the, I got to a spot. I dribbled over to the left a little bit, like towards the middle, and I was at a spot. Where I was like, it's deep, but I was comfortable right there if I could just raise up and just shoot the ball. And um, he was like a little bit out, and I was looking at the clock trying to see how long he would stay that far away from me. Um, but then I was like, all right, he going to realize that I'm going to have to shoot a jump and I'm not going to drive if I wait too long. So I went between the legs to get him to move a little bit to my left. <laughs> and I crossed over right to left between the legs, and he was on on the left side of my body. And then right after I went between the legs, it was like two seconds left, and he moved, he was a little bit to my left. And I just sidestepped to the right, and I got a clear look at the brim. You know, he, he contested it pretty good, but he was to the left side of me. And I was – so it was like – it didn't really have an effect on on the shot. Paul George had a different outlook on it uh, that day, as uh, you know, he obviously uh, was the recipient of that shot. Now, Damian Lillard coming back to Portland, mixed bag for me, but I want to hear from you five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. Because on one hand, I think about the iconic shot, and I think it's the greatest shot in Blazers history. It is iconic. It won a series. It didn't just win a game. And and that catharsis that Blazer fans felt that day in getting by the Oklahoma City Thunder and advancing in the playoffs, you had to be here for the journey, right, to understand the gravity of that moment and the shot that he hit. Now, that said, I look at the totality of Lillard's time in Portland. I see a multiple-time All-Star, a, t- a player who did well for himself, maximizing his contract, made as much money as he possibly could have made, drafted where he was drafted for the team that he originally stayed with, took it all the way to the end, renegotiating, re-upping the contract, and I look at the roster around Lillard throughout his tenure, and I say, gosh, you know, they never really maximized, and they never really gave him the support that he needed. And gosh, ownership wasn't quite what it could be, and management certainly wasn't what it should be. And Damian Lillard probably shouldn't have had all the points all the shots, all the accolades, because on a better team, he would have been surrounded by better players, and maybe his career would be you know, not as elevated or the spotlight not on it quite in the way that it ended up in Portland, but I think Blazer fans would have enjoyed the ride a little bit more with Lillard having more complimentary players around him on the roster. I look at you know getting to the Western Conference Finals one time and getting swept in Lillard's career as a massive underachievement, even that one year that they got to the finals, I thought that their path to the conference finals was uh, an easy path. They uh, didn't have to play uh, the teams that I thought matched up better with them. Getting past Denver uh, to get to the next round, not as difficult as maybe being on the other side of the bracket. They run into the Warriors. The Warriors just sweep them right out of the playoffs. It wasn't even a series, really. It was kind of an embarrassment. And and then I look at the belly aching and the whining down the stretch after he agreed to the extension, got himself the money, and then kind of looked around. It was clear and evident that Damian Lillard and his agent wanted out of Portland. He wanted to go to Miami. His exit was a little unceremonious. But by NBA standards, Damian Lillard was as loyal to Portland as any NBA player that I can think of. He, he exhibited loyalty. And in return, he wanted a chance to win. And I think it's a real shame that he didn't get Phil Knight as an owner or he didn't get a better general manager who was more equipped to get him 
you know, surrounding pieces and supporting pieces. Neil O'Shea made some bad moves, particularly in the summer of 2016, that really hamstrung the effort to build around Damian Lillard. And so I am left feeling on a on a Tuesday, on the eve of Damian Lillard's return to Portland in a Milwaukee Bucks uniform, I am feeling a little flat about his time in Portland and what could have been. But I want you to tell me, if you had an opportunity to talk with Lillard, say something to Lillard, how do you view his return? 503-417-7575. we got a great show for you today. Stephen, how do you view the return of Damian Lillard to Portland? Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. I, I, I'm excited to see how it goes. I'm with you. It's going to be a big reaction of positivity, I think, for Dame. I don't think there's going to be a lot of negative you know, booze or anything. I think it's going to be all positive. It's going to be a lot of standing ovations. Um, I, for me, when I think back to the Dame era, I do think of underachieving because not just by not just not Dame, not Dame underachieving, but the whole team underachieving the how how it could have been just un you know the unwillingness of Neil O'Shea to try to make a big move. It was all about you know finding role players and building around C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard when that wasn't the right decision. I, I think most of us could tell that wasn't going to work to be an NBA championship team. And that's just what they went with. And so it's just, it's, it was unfulfilled to try to see what they could really do with Dame. But, you know, I think I was always a little more down on Dame than a lot of people. So I'm with you. I don't have him as the best player in Blazers history. I don't really think it's close. I think it's Drexler. I think it's Walton. And then I think it's Dame. But at the same time, Dame has been so good around the community. He's been so good on the court because he hasn't had a lot of help. Like he did a lot for this team and he brought him out of, you know, the whole Blazers era with Brandon Roy, Greg Oden being hurt, and then LaMarcus wanting to leave. Like, he took the reins when it was nobody wanted to be in Portland. And he took the reins, and he took it over from there. So, you know, you're, you're always grateful for Dame that wanted wanting to play here, wanting to try, to try it out, get to, you know, as far as he could with the Blazers. I put more of it on, you know, the general manager, Neil O'Shea, couldn't get the job done, couldn't put the right place, pieces around him. And then, you know, ultimately when Neil O'Shea had to be like, or when he had to leave, and it was Joe Cronin, at that point the team wasn't very good. And so I wanted to rebuild, and I was ready for Dame to leave Portland because it just wasn't going to work out. And he didn't want to lose out on the value you had in that type of player. So I'm glad that the era is over because, you know what, I wanted to change. I wanted something new. I was tired of a very middling team where, best-case scenario, they're making the playoff, of the, you know, the sixth seed, and then they get swept in the first round. I was tired of that. I wanted to see something different. I wanted to try something different, so I'm glad they traded Dame. But you know what? The Dame era was good. But you know, it just always feels a little bit a little bit uh you know, not as not as high as it could have been. And I feel like there was moves yeah. to be made and they didn't do it. But you know what? It it wasn't Dame's fault. It's just he was the best player on that team. I, I think though there's part of it that, you know, that, that playoff run where they beat Oklahoma City, they beat Denver. They advanced to play the Warriors. There was a real feeling in the Western Conference that the Warriors were going to run away with it no matter what. And I kind of wondered about the Clippers and the Rockets and some of the other teams that were involved in those playoffs. And I kind of think like there might have been a little bit of uh, looking ahead and going, uh, what's the point? We're going to run into the Warriors anyway. And I kind of just, the Warriors were that good at that time. I kind of wonder if getting to the conference finals enabled Neil Olshay in a negative way to kind of perpetuate the roster instead of, you know, have had the shot not gone in. They don't beat Oklahoma City. Let's say the Thunder win that game, knock the Blazers out of the playoffs. I kind of wonder if Olshay would have been forced at that point to make the moves necessary that would have been a better 
Blazers team in the long run. And, I, and I'm not blaming Damian Lillard for hitting the shot. Don't get me wrong. He's got to take the shot and make the shot. He's got to be himself. But I am left thinking about that playoffs. And I can remember sitting on press row, you know, watching you know the games particularly that were in the Bay Area, and thinking to myself, like, the Blazers are nowhere close to breaking through in the West. Like, you know, they, they got by a young Denver team that was still blossoming very much in the way that the Blazers could have been. They got by uh, an Oklahoma City team that was ready to give up on Russell Westbrook and Paul George as a combination. And they ended up, you know, running into Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and, you know, just getting boat raced. And I just kind of wonder if it was fool's gold at the time. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, you know, is this necessarily the best thing? Because, you know, Neil Olshay was over there crowing about, you know, nobody believed in us. Nobody bought into the narrative. And I was like, you're not, you're, they weren't that much better than they were the year before. No, you're right. And that, it, it, the big, one of the biggest what ifs, there's always so many what ifs in all franchise history, but especially the Blazers. One of the biggest ones is what if Paul Allen wasn't deathly sick in 2018? He died in October, and that was right after the Blazers got swept in the first round by the Pelicans. And there were the rumors that he wanted to fire Terry Stotts, he wanted to fire Neil O'Shea, but that wasn't what was on his mind. His On his mind was his life and what was happening, and they just kind of put it to the back burner. And then he passes away, and then Neil O'Shea keeps his job. Terry Stotts keeps his job. And then Neil O'Shea, like you said, builds a roster that got to the Western Conference Finals by luck, by whatever it is. And so then there was more, you know, positivity built back up into Neil O'Shea and what he could do. It, I, if Paul Allen wasn't dying at that moment, Neil O'Shea would have been fired. Terry Stotts would have been fired. And then it would have been interesting to see who they hired who as a GM, who they hired as a coach, and who they brought next to Dame. Because Dame wouldn't have left. It probably would have been a C.J. McCollum trade. It would have been something else. It would have been adding onto the roster to build around Dame. And at that point, they still had players because the next season they got to the Western Conference Finals. So th- that's always one of the biggest what-ifs, man. And it's just... That's the part that always makes me just sad is that Neil O'Shea benefited so much from the Paul Allen death, I felt like, by getting so much more power in the organization. And that's what really hurt just the entire you know f- angle of the franchise. Then it was the fool's goal to get into the Western Conference Finals. They weren't real contenders in that series. I know they were up in every game against the Warriors. The Warriors did not take the Blazers seriously in that game. They knew they could flip the switch and win every single game. And then it was fool's gold after that. So, man, it just... That's what I think about a lot of times when I think of this Dame era. Yeah, and I look back to the, you know, it was just a few months after Lillard hit the shot. Blazers are preparing for the following season. And uh, Neil Olshay, uh, this is four months after the shot, shows up at media day and starts talking about, you know, we had a lot of co- we had a lot of comfort with our roster. We wanted continuity. And I was just going... That's the problem with beating Oklahoma City with a game-winning shot. Instead of going to overtime, maybe losing that series, you know, there was a negative impact that that run had that I think impacted the general manager and, and sort of the view of the franchise. Here's Olshay showing up just months after the shot and, uh, you know, I think selling a narrative that we all know now was stale. Well, it's a, a testament to, to Terry and the assistant coaches and, you know, Dame and, and CJ. But, you know... I think we get guys at the right time. Um, you know, when you look at it, I mean, we chased Powell as a free agent. We chased Mario as a free agent. We chased Bays as a free agent. Um, and, you know, it wasn't the right time. But I think getting guys coming from situations where maybe they hadn't been as successful either individually or as a team as they had liked, um, you know, over the last few years, 
I think getting them now coming into a team that was in the Western Conference Finals um, where we've got great continuity in terms of our two best players, the GM, the business president, ownership, um, and head coach, I think it gives them a comfort level coming in too. So, you know, one of the luxuries of sustainability and continuity in terms of front office and coaching staff and ownership is that you may miss the first time you go after guys, but the next time it comes back around, they know they're walking into a situation that they had evaluated previously, and this team and the leadership of the team has lived up to what we had pitched them in their meetings the last time. It kind of makes me sick because you can, you know, if you go back and you really piece together Neil O'Shea's comments season to season, you understand that this was not about trying to win a championship at all. This was about trying to be passable and, frankly, frankly manufacturing continuity in particular for his own job security. Well, think you about know, what he was saying there. He was <laughs> he was celebrating Kent Bazemore and Mario Hazonia and Pau Gasol. Like, those are the guys that made no difference, and he's celebrating that like, this is the difference. But no, it's not, man. Like, oh. I was I got irritated listening to that. Yeah, and you know, and then he, you know, he's talking about, you know, the Western Conference and, you know, and how uh, how difficult it is. I think our team's better. We were in the Western Conference Finals and got better this off season. But so did, so did Houston. So did the Clippers. So did the Lakers. You know, all the way down. I mean, there are, there are just no nights off in the Western Conference. I mean, it's this isn't wiffle ball out here. Not wiffle ball. They didn't get better. Uh, I want to hear from Blazer fans though. You out there listening? You've got a feeling about Damian Lillard's return. There were highlights and lots of them. Big shots, big moments. It made the franchise feel important and big. But what's your feeling about Lillard coming back in a Milwaukee Bucks uniform? I talked to a friend today who's got courtside center court seats. He had originally listed them on StubHub. I think he put them out there at a ridiculous price, $5,000 each. He has reduced the price down to 1100 bucks. For the courtside seats, that's like less than a normal game. Is Does this game not hold the cachet that we thought it would when Lillard returned? I want your honest take, your honest feedback, your honest input. Only you can tell me how you feel. 503-417-7575. Well, I just published a piece uh, right before the show at johnconzano.com about the Portland Diamond Project. Major League Baseball to Portland effort. A uh, little bit of news on their front. They have pivoted. Remember, they originally were going to build a waterfront ballpark at the Terminal 2 site. They also had explored the Portland Public Schools site, then sort of pivoted to Lloyd Center. Uh, I am told by Craig Cheek, who is the founder of and president of the Portland Diamond Project, that they are now preparing a $50 million land offer to the city of Portland for the Red Tail Golf Course property, more than 160 acres. Uh, it is owned by the city of Portland, but has been annexed into Beaverton. So it is on the border of Beaverton and Tigard, uh, you know, right against the edge of Portland. Really interesting uh, location. There are obviously some people who are probably concerned about traffic there, but here's what I know. I know there was a meeting on Friday Closed-door meeting at City Hall. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler was there. His staff was there. The leaders of the Portland Diamond Project were there. And they basically announced that uh, they're going big. They're going after the 164-acre Red Tail Golf Course property. 
They, uh, I guess, had tried to go down the road with Lloyd Center. It's only 27 acres. It's too small to do what they want to do with the ballpark. It also has a variety of entanglements with leases and other contracts, and it was just going to take too much time to get that off the ground. We're in year six of the Diamond Project, not the first pivot by the group, but it appears as though they have a plan, and it's a big plan. And maybe it's the plan that Major League Baseball wants to hear because, you know, Big League Utah, that pro-MLB effort in Salt Lake City, they're busy putting up billboards. They're busy trying to woo the A's to come play in Salt Lake City while their new stadium in Vegas gets built. It is a highly evolved and more sophisticated effort in Salt Lake City. And so I kind of see this red tail thing as the answer to that. And Craig Cheek told me it's the culmination of six years of blood, sweat, and tears. They've done the appraisals on the land. Developers have been consulted. City leaders in Beaverton and Tigard have had positive discussions with the group. And uh, so now uh, the next step is the Diamond Project will present a written offer to purchase the property from the city of Portland. There will be a vote by the mayor and the four city commissioners. That property uh, estimated to be worth $50 million, maybe $55 million, somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, it seems as though the Diamond Project has taken their swing. They are finally going to say, hey, Major League Baseball, we've got a ballpark. It belongs to the metropolitan area, much in the same way that Truist Park in Atlanta, located 10 miles from downtown Atlanta, is in Cobb County. Uh, the Cobb County Braves, that's what uh, nobody calls them. Uh, they belong to Atlanta, but, um, you know, Major League Baseball to Portland, is it going to happen? I don't know. People keep asking me, is it going to happen? I don't know. But I can tell you it wasn't happening with Lloyd Center. And too much red tape, too small. The Red Tail site, 164 acres, would be the largest Major League stadium development in history. It would be the biggest thing that Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball owners have ever laid their eyes upon and so i think that's the angle if you're portland that's the angle and for ted wheeler the mayor of portland who has had a reputation that has been battered talk about the graffiti on the highways the reputation of the city nationally it you know it's been a tough run for ted wheeler the mayor of portland but here's an opportunity for him to maybe get a win in that he can look back and say hey my legacy Part of my legacy was, uh, you know, the, the the seeds for Major League Baseball were planted. The stadium do, isn't going to be in Portland, so you wouldn't have the, you know, politics of Portland involved. It would be Beaverton and Tigard. It would be their, sort of their uh, kingdom over there, so to speak. Certainly there are some traffic issues that I think people would need to wrap their heads around. But I like at the very least that the Portland Diamond Project appears ready to spend $50, $55 million to go get this piece of property and present it to Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball and develop a, a stadium in an entertainment district and make a run of it. And if you can do it without having to involve Portland politics, great. But if, I, if I'm the city of Portland, I'm kind of looking at the benefit of it and going, hey, we don't have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars here and we still get sort of the uh, the glow of the team, much in the same way that Atlanta gets. We still get people staying in hotels and going to downtown restaurants and 
We uh, still reap, uh, you know, the jobs that are created and the tax revenue that is created for the state of Oregon. All that sort of has a halo effect, a ripple effect on the city of Portland. And the brand of Portland suddenly is, hey, you know, that battered city that, you know, is so politically, uh, you know, in a uh, in a in a in a stranglehold that it can't get out of its own way. Uh, that city's doing something big. You know, never mind that it's Beaverton, which fashions itself as the Bellevue of Oregon, you know, Bellevue, Washington to Seattle, Beaverton to to Oregon, you tell me. But I like it. I think it's a good idea. I'm glad they're taking a swing, you know, but, you know, if you point a gun at me and say, is it going to work? I don't know. I don't know what Rob Manfred's looking for. I don't know what Major League Baseball's looking for. But I like it better than taking a shot at the Lloyd Center Mall property, which was 27 acres. I think the ballpark was supposed to be 15 or 16 acres of that. Like, it just doesn't leave a lot of room around the edges for a development of, uh, you know, affordable housing or shopping or an entertainment district. And so I, I like that they're taking the swing. I wish them luck. We'll see what happens. But I talked to Craig Cheek today. He seemed excited about it. I also got my eyes on a letter that he wrote to the mayor, along with a bunch of other construction experts and developers and architects and designers and city leaders. And, you know, it looks like everybody's kind of lined up behind it. We'll see what happens. 503-417-7575 if you want to weigh in on Major League Baseball to Portland. Stephen, are, are you a ticket holder for that, or you uh, are you skeptical given that this effort has seemed to go sleepy at different times? Yeah, I mean, I would love, love for Major League Baseball to come to Portland. I think it would be just great for the city. I think it would be great. I think it would be successful here. I think there is, a, there is an appetite for another professional sport here. Um, I would definitely be on board and want to, you know, wherever it can be and if it's not in the city of portland it's outside the city limits which sounds like it's going to have to be i think that's great and i think it will be uh successful but it does worry me john that there have been a lot of times where there's so much momentum and there's so much talk about it and then all of a sudden just falls off a cliff and then we don't hear from the diamond project for a year or two And, and that's how it seems like it's gone you said six years has been around like that's how it's gone these last six years to me it just seems like there's so much momentum for about you know a month maybe two months then it all falls off a cliff, and then we don't hear from them for a year or you know, 18 months, something like that. And so that is my ultimate worry is that, yeah, it's great to have these talks again. It's great to bring it back up, and it's great to always have it on the radar. But I have to see it, have to, I have to see it happen before I'm going to believe it. It's one of those things. It's like aliens. I got to see it before I believe it. So I, believe, I know uh, what you're saying. I, just, I, I, you know, I, I got the rug pulled out for me so many times just here in the city of Portland, rooting for the Blazers and all that kind of thing. I'm just skeptical all the time with it and how the, how the city of Portland is ran by everybody and politicians. So I, just, I have no trust that there's going to be any type of support to bring the team here. But I think if they can get it here, it's going to be supported by the fans. I think there is an appetite there. Yeah, and I, I kind of think, too, the um you know the the fact that i'm not surprised that it's it's pivoted to a suburban feel because all along i kind of wondered like could the city of portland get its act together would they be forced with the baseball project be forced to sort of uh plant a stadium someplace where you know they were hitting balls into portland but not you know not a portland address but um you know i think too there you know there's a a bigger picture issue here for the mayor of portland and the city commissioners like i just i'm kind of wondering like will they try to politicize you know even the vote about you know selling the property you know this is a development play obviously for the portland diamond project yes there's a baseball team involved but there's a development play there 
that I think would help the metropolitan area immensely. Will the city of Portland uh, line up and sell this piece of property to the Diamond Project for you know whatever the appraisers say it's worth? Um, you know that's going to happen here. I think in the next week or two, this will be proposed, and we'll see what happens as far as uh, you know that piece of property. Now, you know, I posted the piece online immediately on social media. Of course, the very first few comments. Which, by the way, I've learned that you know, not to pay too much attention when somebody is tweeting whatever. But the very first comments were what I expected. It was a bunch of people saying, "Hey, what about traffic?" Hey, this isn't going to work with Portland politics. Hey, that you know, we've got bigger issues than baseball. Well, of course, like the city of Portland has massive issues with homelessness, drugs, mental health, health and wellness, and and so maybe this gives Portland an opportunity to take that fifty million dollar windfall and create some kind of opportunity to address issues that are. Frankly, more pressing than baseball. I don't know. Is it a win-win? Let's go to Sammy in Portland. Sammy, welcome. Hey, John. Um, so let me get this straight. The only deal is Portland to sell the property, $50 million, to the Diamond Project. That's it. There's nothing about upkeep and maintenance or a contract uh, with other stuff moving forward. It's a cut and dry fifty million dollars. You'll you'll give us the property, and we're done. We're, our hands are. That's it. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. The the property is was annexed into Beaverton, so technically, it lies in unincorporated Washington County. So yes, the Diamond Project would own it. Portland would be like, see you later. I was toward, told by a source at City Hall that the mayor in his meeting with the Diamond Project basically said, you you realize you're walking away from like. $400 million of potential um, help from the city if you take this to Beaverton and Tigard. And the Diamond Project just said it's a bigger piece of property. That's where we want to go. So, I, you know, I don't know. Could they use some of that money for homelessness and mental health and clean up some graffiti? I don't know, Sam. Yeah, I I think that's that's a great point. I think that if, if they go down that road, I, I have to lean towards, you know, we're, we're going to have a new city council in a year, and there's going to be 12 members opposed to five. And something like this, I would like to see more uh, community involvement and engagement before five members as opposed to 12 make that vote. Um, you know, but it sounds, it sounds like something that could be beneficial for the community. I'm not so sure, you know, like... Uh, you know, they were saying earlier, we've been doing this for six years. We still don't even know who the money behind this project is. And it's time for them to, to make something happen, get this done, and then move forward and try to get the team here. But um, that's my thing. If, if there's any more to it than just selling the land, I think we might have to wait until the new city council's in place. Yeah, I think. I don't, yeah, I don't think that you can afford to wait for Major League Baseball. I think Major League Baseball is going to come out in the next month. Six weeks at the most. And I think they're going to talk expansion. And I think you can see it kind of ramping up in Salt Lake City. You can feel kind of the urgency of the A's who, you know, they're not sure where they're going to be, you know, as they wait to Vegas. You go to Vegas. Are they going to Vegas? Like, you know, that news conference with John Fisher in Vegas. Like, there's no, I just don't know if the A's are going to work there. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. 
Did you see or hear the uh, sound from that news conference with the A's? I did. It was uh, wild. Yeah. I mean, I can't even okay. imagine like a brand new team reacting to, or brand new fans reacting like that. All right, I got it here. Huge crowd. I kind of wonder if they they paid the crowd to be there. It just had that feel. MC trying to pump the crowd up about the A's. John Fisher about to speak to the crowd, owner of the A's. Here it is, all hyped up. Let's give it up one more time for Mary Beth and John Fisher, please. The Las Vegas A's. We like the sound of that, right, Vegas? Yeah? Yes? Are we, are we alive back there, Las Vegas? How we feeling? <laughs> okay. I think that they drove shuttle buses around Vegas and picked up people and said, we want to give you 25 bucks and take you to a timeshare presentation. And then they, they let them out at this rally to welcome the A's. Like, did you hear? Like, how about the A's? I, there was a couple collabs, let's be fair. You know, there's a couple people excited. But, you yeah, know, it does seem like one of those things. It's like, hey, you know what? We'll give you, uh, you know, free tickets to, uh, you know, Cirque du Soleil if you go do this uh, thing at this event right here and sit through it. The people are waiting for their coupon for the buffet. Um, I, look, I just I think it's really interesting. I'm excited to, you know, to see what happens with it. I'm not rooting for it, not rooting against it. I'm obviously a baseball guy. I'd love to see baseball in closer proximity, but it's got to make sense. It's got to work. I'm really curious. I'd love to get the mayor of Beaverton on the show, the mayor of Tigard on the show. They would be impacted by this, I think, as much as anybody else. But if you're in Beaverton and you're listening to this, I don't know. I drove I drove the property about a week ago. I went over there. I was happened to be in the area. I was like, oh, gosh, I'm right by the Red Tail Golf Course. I just kind of drove by it. And, and, the, and the thought I had was, okay, there's a lot of space out here. You can see the 160 to 170 acres that they're going to, you know, potentially build this ballpark and this development on. But I thought, okay, there's a lot of space. Uh, I got to think the plan, which I haven't seen renderings, haven't seen any of that, but I have to think that the plan includes infrastructure for the streets, for traffic, for people who would be traveling in and out of the area. For those of you who listen to this show and you're, you're uh, you know, in the parking lot called 217 and Highway 217 or on 26 on the Sunset Highway, and you're listening to the show, you're, you know, you're all probably rolling your eyes going, wait a minute, we don't want more traffic here. But if there's an investment of infrastructure that results in, you know, more light rail options, um, you know, uh, you know, widening of streets, better freeway access that benefits that commute on 217 and the commute on Highway 26 and non-game days, I can't think that, that uh, taxpayers would be against that. I also know... Being a person who grew up in the Bay Area, when the San Francisco Giants stuck their ballpark, which was Pac Bell Park or AT&T Park, down right in the Embarcadero, right in the heart of San Francisco in the highest rent district uh, in the state, in the western part of the United States, and they put that ballpark in there, they put no extra you know, traffic flow, nothing. like it. And it is a nightmare if you don't know what you're doing to get in and out of the ballpark. Now, People who go to a lot of Giants games figure it out pretty quickly. They could park at various stops along where the cow train goes and then just ride the train to the ballpark, and that has become a thing. You know, could that become a thing with a ballpark over by Red Tail Golf Course? I don't know. All right, coming up, our big splash. We're also going to talk a little later in the program with Ryan Gunderson. He's the offensive coordinator at Oregon State. He will be with us. Orlando Sanchez from KGW was just out at Adidas headquarters. 
You're not going to believe what they're doing. I'll share it with you coming up at 4 o'clock. I want you to be here for it. Trailblazers, Bucks tomorrow at Moda Center. The return of Damian Lillard. Uh, a lot of people excited about that. A lot of Blazer fans who love Damian Lillard excited. I, I, um, I have mixed feelings about it, as I mentioned off the top of the show, and I think probably some Blazer fans have mixed feelings as well. I mean, it's not, I think, easy to see a player that, you know, kids in Portland who are 15, 16, 17 years old probably watched growing up for most of their childhood. Those are the Blazers they remember, and that guy's in another uniform. And, you know, I think one of the blessings of maybe my childhood and maybe you out there, if you're somebody in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you probably got more of an opportunity to see your favorite player stay in your favorite uniform for longer stretches of time than maybe we do in today's world of sports, certainly in college football, you know, where players now are jumping around. We haven't even talked about the the uh, betrayal transfer in Washington that it took place over the weekend. But I, I am left today thinking about Lillard and how long he spent in a Blazers uniform. Um, I think that it was a little bit refreshing by NBA standards. Uh, to see a player exhibit some loyalty. Although, as Stephen would point out, Damian Lillard made $500 million playing for the Blazers. It wasn't like that loyalty was not repaid. Um, This brings us, of course, to our big splash. It's uh, the one thing that I think you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, we're going to get it. It's the match made in heaven. No, it's not Bobby Riggs against Billie Jean King on a tennis court, but it kind of has some echoes of it. Steph Curry and Sabrina Ionescu, two of the best three-point shooters in history will join each other in a three-point contest at All-Star Weekend in Indianapolis, February 17th. It's official. It's on. It's Curry v. Inescu in this three-point contest. First time that an NBA and WNBA player will go head-to-head in a competition. Uh, Curry will shoot. Steph Curry will shoot from the three-point line from the NBA with an NBA basketball. Sabrina will shoot from the WNBA three-point line using a WNBA basketball. Now, Steph Curry had hinted about this a couple weeks ago uh, with teammates. He had kind of said, hey, I think me and Sabrina should compete in this. It did not take long for Ionescu to take to social media to accept the challenge. And so the three-point shootout champion from the WNBA, who scored 37 points on 25 of 27 shooting, the most in history, will take on Steph Curry, who held the previous record with 31 points. Who you got? Steven, who you got? Um, I'm going to go with Sabrina. I think Sabrina, yes. um, it's not just because it's closer and it's a smaller ball. I just think Sabrina is in a better spot, but I do think the, the distance does help and the ball does help a little bit. So um, I, I think Sabrina just is so talented that she's going to be the, beat Steph Curry. Do you think the narrative afterwards is going to be about the smaller ball and the shorter three-point line 
or will sports fans accept if Sabrina wins it? Because I kind of think that people are going to bellyache if she beats Steph Curry. You're going to hear, well, it was you know it was a smaller ball. Well, it was shorter. Uh, but do you th- or do you think the WNBA is at the point where fans will just kind of recognize that's greatness against greatness? Who cares if it's different? No, I think there's definitely going to be, uh, especially some men that are going to say, you know what? Yeah. Uh, no, smaller ball, shorter to the hoop, shorter distance doesn't really count. Steph Curry is still the better shooter. Uh, yeah, it, and I just think that's just kind of how it's going to be. But I think I think for the most part, basketball fans can recognize that Sabrina is a really good basketball player and can really shoot the basketball. But there's always going to be that you know minority of people, and it may not be the minority. It might be a lot more people than I actually think that are definitely going to complain and say, well, it's really not a fair competition. If Steph Curry got to shoot from closer in, it would, he would make even more. So I don't know, man. I say I, let him shoot from the WNBA line. Let I him shoot too. it. I do too, but what about the ball? He's not used to the ball. So let has- him. But he can use his whatever ball he prefers, and they shoot the same difference. Because at the corners, they're both 22 feet. Right. The arc is 22 feet from the corners. And, you know, at the at the top, the NBA line is 23 feet, 9 inches, and the WNBA is 22 feet, about 2 inches. And, and that, so, that's a big difference, too, yeah, in basketball terms. At the top. So at the top and the corners, there's going to be an advantage for Sabrina, but it's the same down in the, uh, in the side. But I kind of think you just let Steph go. You go, hey, you pick your ball, and you get to shoot the WNBA line. Or would people then say, well, he's not used to shooting at that distance? Do you think if Steph Curry wins, there's going to be pushback? Like, just, I don't know, just whether it's negativity towards Sabrina or negativity towards Steph Curry for winning. Like, I feel like there's not a lot of wins in this situation. I think we should, if whoever's pushing back should have to go out on a court and play Sabrina (laughs) one-on-one full court. That, you know, and about three trips down when that guy's puking in a trash can, um, you know, you can... We can end that debate. I don't know. Maybe we could all just accept that it's supposed to be fun, and this is supposed to be entertainment, and this is kind of like the debate of saying, you know, what hap- What would happen if a crocodile and a lion were in an elevator fighting? You know, who wins this? Like, you know, it's okay that they're different. It's okay that, you know, this isn't an octagon. We don't have to have a referee. Nobody's going to get beat up. Like, this isn't about, you know, are women smarter or men smarter? Doesn't have to be that way. Like, can't yeah. can we just accept that it's fun? It's not that serious. It's really not that serious. It's just a lot of fun. Like you said, it's a contest between you know the two people who you know Sabrina's the best three point shooter in the WNBA. She holds the all time record for uh, the competition record. You know points. Steph is the all time best shooter in the NBA. So let's put them together and see what happens. It's something different. It's something. You know what? All Star Weekend really lacks like entertainment value. So this is something new that I think will catch the eyeballs of people. So I think it's a fun idea. I think you're going to have three groups of people. I think you're going to have one group of people who say this is awesome, it's great, it's just great entertainment. It's really good for Sabrina, too, by the way, to get some exposure on that stage for with an NBA game. Those it Oregon allow- people really know yeah. how to market themselves, John. Yeah, it, it allows some crossover between the two leagues. Cool, it's great. There's going to be a lot of positivity from that group. Second group is going to be- bellyache about you know the three-point line and the foot and seven inches difference at the top of the key and the size of the ball, and this isn't fair, and if they played each other one-on-one, Steph would dominate her, and, you know, you put her in the game and let's see how she does. There's going to be total negativity from that group. The third group I'm interested in, and the third group I think can be won over, 
And that third group is going to be people who say, I'm not sure what to do with this, but I'm going to watch it because it's different and it's interesting. I'm going to watch it, and I'm maybe they're going to give it a chance. And it's that group that I think I'm most interested to see what they think after this con- competition. And I'll be honest, like in recent years, I have decided the slam dunk competition, the skills competition, and maybe even the game itself is not for me. And I've said that on radio. I've said, you know, this game isn't for me. This weekend isn't made for me. This isn't about, you know, you know, me seeing the best players in the world anymore. The whole weekend's become kind of a joke. So, but suddenly I find myself going, you know what? Saturday night, All-Star weekend, I actually might tune in to see this thing. Let's go to Daryl, who's in Myrtle Creek. Daryl, go ahead. Hey, John, thanks for taking the call. Um, why don't we make it even? Cut it in half. Move him in halfway between the WNBA line and the NBA line. Move her out. Because he's not used to shooting from the WNBA line. She's not used to shooting from the NBA line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get your point. You sound like you're in Tron, the game right now. But how about this? At you know, as you rotate around the key, I like Daryl's idea. When you hit the top of the key, you have to suddenly you go around with the WNBA arc all the way to the top, and then you have to use the NBA arc on the other side but of the why, key. Why does it have to be even? Don't we understand that like the women's game and the men's game is different? Like Sabrina's a great. Goal. Yeah, yeah. It's, diff- it's just a different game. Like, Sabrina's awesome how she is a player. But you know what? If she played in an NBA game, she wouldn't be good. Like, it's just that's just how it is. And this was sparked because Steph had the record of 31 points, and she destroyed it in at last, last year in winning this competition. She absolutely destroyed it. She could not miss. And so suddenly this was this was all competition. And, of course, you know, there's a connection with them in that she grew up in the Bay Area not far from where the Warriors play. You know, and, uh, you know, there's there's sort of, uh, you know, there's a fun rivalry going on here. All right, Orlando Sanchez, KGW, coming up next. One of my good friends in sports media, Orlando Sanchez, KGW. Sports anchor, reporter. Does a fantastic job. You can catch him on KGW and KGW Sports Sunday. He was out today at the Adidas headquarters. Let's start with that. Orlando, welcome. Yes, thanks for having me, John. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, give me an idea. What are you What are you doing at Adidas headquarters? Yeah, I, I, my eyebrows kind of raised uh, when, when we got when we got the email that they were throwing a little party for Damian Lillard, and I said, "Wait, hold up, what?" So yeah, we uh, we went down to Adidas headquarters today in, in North Portland, and uh, basically what they were doing was they have a basketball court, a gym on the campus of the Adidas headquarters, and they named it after Damian Lillard. Uh, They knew he was going to be in town and wanted to celebrate his greatness, and uh, he he, he pulled up, family in tow, and and it was kind of just a a big celebration of of the relationship that Damian Lillard has with Adidas. And I guess what also made it a really big deal for Adidas is it? It's the first time in their you know seventy-five year history there that they've named a place after an athlete that they've that they've had. You know, you'll hear about other other brands. You know, like Nike headquarters. How you know they've got different buildings that are named after different athletes. But this is the first time that Adidas has done that, and so I think that just added a little more to it. And Dame, he he talked and addressed all the employees and folks that 
that were invited to the party, uh, you know, mentioned how it, it was special to him and it, it showed the relationship and the value that, that they have in him and, and all of that good stuff. So it was, it was cool. It was, it was really cool um, for a lot of people to just celebrate Dame. And, you know, obviously for us that have talked to Dame for, you know, the eight or ten years that he was he was here in, in Portland, um, you know, it's kind of like old times again because he did a, a address the media for, for a few minutes uh, while he was out there. Give me an idea because I think fans have a relationship with Lillard, but – you were one of those guys that showed up, you interviewed them a lot, you were at games. What was it like, or what kind of emotions did you have seeing him again after, you know, seeing him from a distance this season? You know, it's, it, it was unique. I mean, especially, I think, the first game in Milwaukee, he, he hits the buzzer beater, and I was kind of joking about it on one of my sports casts. It was like the Wolverine meme, you know, where he's lamenting and thinking back at the, the good old times they had holding the picture frame. And, you know, Rip City is just looking at that old Damian Lillard picture that, that they had or poster. It, 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 was, it was like that for, I think, a lot of Trailblazers fans. And it, it is definitely weird as, as, you know, when you go to a Blazers game or you're covering the Blazers, you automatically know, like, post-game, good, bad, whatever happens, you're more than likely – going to talk to Dame and you're going to have a question or two for him. So it was just one of those givens and not having that for Trailblazers games now this year or just seeing uh, the face of the franchise has has definitely took a while to, to get used to. I mean, now it is what it is, but for the longest time it was. It was just getting used to that because it was so automatic. Uh, but yeah, like seeing him today uh, out there and stuff, it was it was cool. It wasn't like you know, some people were thinking, oh, it's going to be like when you see your, your ex-girlfriend or something for the first time, you run into them at the grocery store or whatever, and it's awkward. And it wasn't like that. And I think part of that is credit to him because, you know, he really just mentioned how good it felt to be back and to be how he's looking forward to being in the building at the Moda Center and being home and mentioning family. Um, it kind of just felt like old times again. Orlando, you know, I want to. Sports is all about highs and lows, high highs, <laughs> sometimes low lows. When I mentioned Damian Lillard, give me your high and your low when it came to his time in Portland. Oh man, I mean the the high I think would be Oklahoma City, and uh, the shot, the bad shot over Paul George waving goodbye. <laughs> man, I'll, I'll never forget that. You know, uh, being up in the, the media section down there and. Um, when he hit the shot, it was like time paused and the celebration did not end. People didn't just walk out of the gym like most games. Everyone wanted to just stay and soak it in. And, you know, I remember us even going live courtside right after it happened. And there were still so many people. And normally when we do our live shots, the gym is empty. You know, like there's <laughs> there's, there's some confetti on the floor and that's about it. But no one wanted to go home, and I don't think I've – it's usually reserved for championships where you have that kind of vibe where people are hanging out and, uh, you know, talking about where they were, what they were doing, what they saw, their angle, their video, all of that good stuff. So that one was easy, man, and I, I think I'll carry that moment just in general and covering sports for a long time. And I, I think the, the low for me was, was just how long the, the breakup was carrying on throughout the summer. Um, I got a chance to go to summer league this year for the first time. And 
seeing fans go through it, I think, uh, puts it into perspective, you know, where they're just so bummed out. And I would say just the breakup and how long it, it went this summer. And, like, you kind of knew it was coming. It was inevitable, but it hadn't happened yet. And then it finally did. So I'd say that. Blazers game tomorrow night against the Bucks. I expected, you know, maybe this is a bigger statement about the Blazers season, but I expected that the tickets would be a really hot ticket. And yet, you know, I'm looking online right now and looks like there's a lot of tickets available and you can get into the arena around for around 50 bucks. Like I I thought it would be a lot higher t- hotter ticket. Is you know, is it that bad at the arena? Is it that people go, "Hey, I don't know, it's going to be painful to see Dame." What do you make of that? I wonder, too, because I kind of thought the same thing. And when we were producing our show for Sports Sunday, our producer, Craig, he had kind of put it in there as, let's let's, let's do the, the ticket story. Let's see how much it's going to cost and all that good stuff. And as we were looking, I'm like, oh, man, like you can get in the door at 300, 300 level for, you know, 50, 60 bucks and throw in a, a few extra bucks for the fees or whatever. Um, that was a little bit of a surprise. I thought it would be an automatic sellout. But I think it, it will be. It'll be the, the you know, the, the only true sellout where – you know, mm-hmm. it's it's the one that everybody was looking forward to. And even the team, like if, if you follow the team on, on, you know, Instagram or whatever, like you're seeing the ads that have been coming up for a week and they're not talking about, see the Blazers face the Bucks. It's welcome back, Damian Lillard, you know, which yeah. I thought was pretty unique and different. But, yeah, I was I was a little surprised at, at where we're where they're at. But I do think it by the time game day rolls around, people are going to pull up. They're going to there, there's going to be a sense of FOMO. Like do, I, as much as some fans might be, you know, going through their feelings. I think they want to be a part of it. Orlando Sanchez, KGW, is our guest. Uh, You'll be covering all of that, of course. A little bit of news today on the Portland Diamond Project front. They're preparing an offer to buy the Red Tail property from the city of Portland, uh, which, you know, technically it's annexed into Beaverton, but the city of Portland owns it. Um, Could be a traffic nightmare out there, but your initial reaction when you heard that? Yeah, uh, I kind of said, whoa, and my eyebrows raised when I saw your report uh, just drop, I don't know, an hour or two ago. And I think my initial reaction was, oh, great, there's a plan. Like, we know a little more about what's going to happen because that's really been the holdup. Is, well, it could be this location. It could be that location. This would be cool. There were just a lot of ideas with not a real specific plan that we knew about i mean the diamond project i'm sure has their contingency plans and everything in place but for us it was like okay here's something that we know we can we can kind of identify as okay this is the way the route that they're going so that was like the main thing and then when i really started to let that soak in i said what's that area like and i'm like oh yeah that's the part where we get stuck in traffic or we're trying to figure out where the heck we're at because there's so much construction and we're trying to get off the exit so that would be my, my big concern. Look forward to hearing details on that is how, how do you how do you make that work? You know, if you've got 20, 30, whatever thousand people trying to get in and out of that area, that's going to be a, a, a real challenge. But end of the day, you know, the opportunity to get Major League Baseball to, to have a shot at it um, is, is huge. And as a sportscaster in this area, you know, we we want all the sports we can get. You know, so uh, it's. I, I think there's some reservations, as as I think most of, most people would say, is like we've heard this before. Or I'm not yes. getting my hopes up, things like that. You know, you don't you don't want to get too far ahead of yourselves, but 
hey, their their job is to be ready, and now there's a plan, and if you build it, they say they will come. So let's see what happens. Orlando Sanchez, uh, KGW. All right, uh, bigger picture. You mentioned, you know, as a sports person, you want all the things you can get. Um, you know, there's a football program at Oregon that had a nice season. Oregon State is in transition, of course, with Trent Bray as a new coach. Um, looking ahead, what is it going to feel like next college football season with Oregon and Oregon State playing in different conferences but playing each other still? Oh, it's going to be so weird, man. It's going to be so weird. I even I was even trying to, to really – when we were in Vegas covering the Pac-12 championship, you know, the final rivalry game, like I was trying to – to take a mental note, like this is the last time you're going to see the Pac-12 logo here in Eugene. This is the last time you're going to see the Ducks with that Pac-12 logo. Like, so I, I think it's going to be odd. And then just the rivalry game being in the you know in the middle of the season or early in the season, like that's going to be weird. It's kind of reminiscent of what the pandemic days were like when you know they were just scheduling the games that they could at weird times. And I think the the Ducks and Beavers played um, in the middle of that pandemic season so it's it's gonna be different man like uh, it's gonna it's gonna take a while the 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 change that's happening and the the new opponents that they're that they're gonna face the places that they're going it's it's gonna be different man it really is yeah and i think i'm excited to see it i'm also excited to see some new matchups for the ducks in the big 10 um and i'm curious to see how oregon state will punch back you know playing that schedule they're gonna play can they in washington state you know, can they punch their way into the playoff and an expanded playoff? And, you know, I, I don't know, Orlando, I'm a, I'm still a sports fan in my heart. I'm struggling a little <laughs> bit with the transfer portal, NIL, the jumping around of players. Um, you know, we see this week that, you know, a defensive back from Washington ends up, uh, ends up jumping over to the Ducks. The Washington fans, uh, Jabbar Muhammad is going to be a duck. Washington fans are calling it the ultimate betrayal, but I'm, go- I'm looking at <laughs> Muhammad and I'm going, he just his he just did what his coach did. His coach left Washington for Alabama. Like, what do you make of that kind of move and the reaction of fans? I think back to the way that Coach Lanning handled the whole Alabama stuff, and him saying, "Look, if you're worried about your coach leaving, just come here. You don't have to worry about that here. You like stability." You know what you're getting here. You don't have to worry about your coach leaving. Like, that's what I go back to and how they handled it. Because even for my job, I've been, I've held, I've had, I've been a little reserved in what we cover in terms of commitments uh, to schools or, or transfer portal stuff, because it changes all the time now. Whereas, you know, a few years ago, back in my day, <laughs> a few years ago, it was like once they committed, you knew that that athlete was going there and, and they were a lock to be a duck, beaver, whatever. And now, you know, things change day to day, week to week. And so, yeah, but I, I think back to how Dan Lanning handled the Alabama stuff, man, in, in this recruiting world. Like you've got to take every opportunity you can to, to use it as a recruiting tool, to use it as, um, you know, marketing. And they, they knocked it out of the park with that, man. Yeah, and I think – you know, they even if he never really was a candidate at Alabama, they certainly took exactly. advantage of that. They you got to yeah. win there. Uh, I don't want to leave Portland State out. Big week in basketball. They had a game in which they were down by double digits with five minutes to go, down by eight with a minute to go. Jace Coburn's team comes back and beats uh, Montana State, wins that game. Um, you know, there's some good things going on at Portland State. I saw, you know, also the football program tweeting out that Ann Cudd, the president, was part of a recruiting <laughs> visit. 
What do you make of the park blocks in Portland State? They're right there by your KGW headquarters. Are they registering with you? The, yeah, they are. I, I, I definitely make um, an effort to get out there because they're so close. So even if they've got a, a home game on a you know a Thursday or Wednesday, women's game, men's game, I get out there. I, I want to see what they're doing. I want to see what they're all about. And, and like you mentioned, the, the school president, I thought that was a huge move, that viral video that they had that they put together with her, you know, lifting and, and, and uh, being around the football team because that sent a message that, hey, look, I know, I know they're there. I, I, want, I want to be a part of this. I, I thought that was huge in, in at least making a statement without the actually having to say it. And that could go a long way, even from a recruiting standpoint and an athlete standpoint, a coaching standpoint. But, yeah, like you mentioned Coach Coburn, uh, man, he has to be one of the most intense coaches to watch. If you ever go to a Portland State men's basketball game and you see him on the sidelines, he is intense. Like the energy that that guy has, it's impressive. And uh, I'm not surprised that they have, you know, these dramatic comeback wins because he doesn't quit on his team. And that passion that he has, I think, um, I think the players feed off of it. And, you know, to, to be down, I think it was like eight or nine with a minute to go and, uh, to end up winning by three or four is just, it's insane. 11-0 run on strict city night. It was really neat. Pretty pretty special game. And so they're doing some cool stuff out there on the park blocks, and they're definitely on my radar. Orlando Sanchez, KGW. You can find him on KGW during the week and Sports Sundays on Sunday evening. Orlando, thank you, man. Thanks for joining us. Uh, have a great week. Hey, appreciate you having me on the show, John. Take care, man. You bet. There he goes. Fresh off the court being dedicated. I don't think it'll be like seeing your ex, seeing Damian Lillard in a Bucks uniform. I kind of think that Blazer fans probably got over that, just like seeing him in the preseason, seeing him on opening night in a Milwaukee uniform. Like, it was weird to kind of see Damian Lillard in that uniform. But I don't think that Blazer fans are going to have that shock on game night. I think they kind of got past it. I just kind of wonder if the pain of not seeing him in a Blazers uniform will keep people away. It appears the ticket prices to this point, um, you know, it, it doesn't appear that it's like the hottest ticket that we've ever seen for a Blazer game. And, and in fact, you know, uh, the the premium seats that were originally posted on StubHub at like ridiculous prices, $5,000 for the center court seats, those same seats are down to 1100 now. And there's plenty of availability. So if you want to go see the Blazers on Wednesday, Wednesday night, you can see them, or you can just close your eyes when the Blazers are on offense and focus yourself on uh, the Milwaukee Bucks side of the court when they're on offense if you're there to see Damian Lillard. There's an easy fix there. All right, Punch It Audio is coming up. We have great sound. What 5 o'clock hour. Steven's going to do the 5 at 5, and then it will be Ryan Gunderson, the offensive coordinator at Oregon State. He's the new guy. We've known him for a while. Gundy played quarterback at Oregon State. He is back as the offensive coordinator. We're going to take a deep dive and have a conversation about the transition. The offensive coordinator job, he worked for Chip Kelly last couple of years. Gunderson, what will his offense look like at Oregon State? I'll ask him all of that good stuff coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here. Good stuff from Orlando Sanchez, KGW. Really, really... uh interesting to kind of get an outside in perspective certainly from somebody who's covered the blazers on a regular basis and uh damian lillard back in portland tomorrow i don't know maybe it's not a big deal maybe it's not a big deal to our listeners i don't know 
I I I thought it would be a little bigger deal. I did. I got to be honest with you. Do you think maybe it'll be a bigger deal tomorrow, like day of the game? Um. Yeah, I think the media is going to make it a big deal. Like, I saw a headline today. I got to be honest that I, 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 I just didn't get. It said that Damian Lillard, Portland's favorite son, is coming back. I'm not going to name the outlet because I don't think it's fair to pick on headline writers. I know a few. But to me, favorite son would be somebody that, like, originated in Portland, like, grew up in Portland. Like, who is Portland's favorite son? You know, when it comes to a uh, perspective, like, Bill Walton's not a son of Portland. Damian Lillard grew up in the Bay Area. Like, I don't, I don't understand the favorite son part of that. And, and I think there's going to be a whole bunch of people who take the drama, um, take the drama too far. And I think that's a case of the drama going too far. Like he, he's not a favorite son of Portland. Like, you know, you could argue Peyton Pritchard could be one of the, in the conversation for favorite sons, Damon Stoudemire, favorite son. Like uh, when you think about athletes who grew up in Portland, Joey Harrington, favorite son, Kevin Love, Kevin Love. Um, like, let's just talk state of Oregon. State of Oregon's favorite son when it comes to sports. The nominees are Steve Prefontaine, Troy Palomalu, Phil Knight, Kevin Love, Danny Ainge, Ashton Eaton, A.C. A. Green, maybe. I don't know. Who's the, who's the favorite son? Terry Baker. Um, you know, I, it, Bob Lilly. Uh, it, there are some favorite. Mel Renfro. There are some favorite sons. Harold Reynolds. Galen Rupp. Galen Rupp. Bob McKittrick from Baker. Like, I, you know, I just, I'm left thinking about, like, favorite son. It's got to be somebody who's from here. Like, that's what a son is. And so I, um, I don't get it. Derek Anderson, pre, uh, I'm just going back. I'm just racking my brain right Troy now. Troy Palomalu. Yep. Mentioned him, yeah. I think he's in it. Uh, Kellen Clemens, you know, I, uh, if we're going to do the top 50 favorite sons, Dick Fosbury, Jacoby Ellsbury, you know, um, I, I'm just thinking favorite son, like Danny Ainge might be the best all-around athlete yeah. that has ever come from the state. But I'm Dave Johnson, remember Dave and Dan and Dave in the commercials for Reebok or in the run-up to the 92 Olympics? Um, Bill Johnson, downhill skier. um there are a lot of favorite sons that we could talk about. Pat Casey, favorite one of the favorite sons, you know. But Damian Lillard's not a favorite son. Like, I don't understand that. Like, you know, the Bay Area is going, hey, wait a minute. You know, like, that's our child. We need a DNA test over here to see who uh, Damian Lillard belongs to. But isn't that part <laughs> Damian Lillard playing into it? Because he even had, you know, Orlando came on and said he talked to the media. I believe in one of his quotes he said, like, this is home. Like, that's what he said. And so, yeah, like, I he kind of plays into it a little bit. It is home, except, uh, you know, his neighbors will tell you he isn't living there anymore. <laughs> so he's in Milwaukee. And he wanted to be in Miami. And so there's that. All right. Uh, I have control of the system, Stephen. Mm, okay. Let's do some, uh, let's do some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. 
you're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Oh, I love this cut from Jamal Crawford, former Blazer, former Clipper, former fill-in an NBA team. Jamal Crawford um, was t- asked about the individual scoring in the league and why we're seeing some spikes in the scoring. I have my theory. It's a copycat league, but here's Jamal Crawford. He's asked about the spikes in scoring, and Dan Patrick asked him, is Kobe's 81-point output a safe mark? Punch it. I, I think it's bad for the game that it's happening this often. Okay. Uh, if it was, you know, an anomaly and happened once a year, it would be something to, to really be revered. Now it's happening so often, you don't know when it's going to happen. I'm not sure how good that is for the game to happen this often. So you think Kobe's 81 is safe? I think it's safe. I hope it's safe because that 81 was against it was against the zone, it was against three defenders. It, go back and look at the spacing and, and how tough those those makes were on the 81 point night. And yeah, we we need to appreciate that for sure. I don't know if we could ever straight face say that the looks were tough on an 81 point night. But what he's saying though, John, is that the defense is terrible now, and I yeah. that is you kind of talked about that like. Our defense is really locking in to when one player gets hot. I think Jamal's touched on it like he doesn't think they do. Like that game is when Kobe went, like they were going at him is what he's saying. Yeah, it, and I agree. To I agree, that, but I think sometimes older players think that as well. But I just think right now there's – I think it's two factors. I think the defense isn't good, and I think there is a I'll let you get yours, you let me get mine mentality that permeates sometimes in the NBA. And it becomes less about – competition in pride. I mean, I just can't imagine anybody with a semblance of personal pride was okay with Carl Anthony Towns, Devin Booker, or Joel Embiid getting 60 plus 70 in a game. Like, where's like the personal pride element of the defenders in those games? Is it good for the game of basketball? That this no. Happens? No. No. It's WWE. It, it makes it look more like entertainment than sport to me. Staying in the NBA, Ramona Shelburne talking about the trade deadline, NBA trade deadline approaching. She does not think the Warriors are going to be a buyer or a seller unless Steph Curry signs off on it. Punch it. I actually think that that game was very encouraging for the Warriors, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll stand on that, that I don't think anything happens in Golden State without Steph Curry. You know, I don't know if he says it, if he says it directly, with a wink or a nod through his agent, whatever it is, but they're not going to make any moves to that core and break up that, that dynastic team unless he's on board with that idea. The same goes for every NBA team with a star, like a true star. You know, nothing happened with the Blazers on Damian Lillard's watch without Lillard knowing it. Be sure of it. Because the general manager and the coach and the franchise, they live in fear of star players and the power they wield with their contracts. And I think that's the reality. Trade deadline is February 8th this year. It's noon Pacific time. Will the Blazers make moves? They control multiple draft picks. If they want to get better, they can. If they want to get younger, they'll just sit around and wait for the draft. But, John, with the Warriors 19-24 and 24 in the season, they're two and a half games back from the play-in tournament. It has been bad. We talked about the Draymond Green thing. Shouldn't the Warriors just say... I don't really, I mean, Steph Curry, I know you're awesome. You're the face of the franchise. We need to get off some of these contracts. We need to get off some of these players, even if you want it or not. 
They're um, because they're not they're a great o- team right now. They're old and expensive, and then Blazer fans should be happy because if the Warriors do not finish, um, you know, you don't want them to have like the worst record in the NBA, but like sixth worst, seventh worst would not be bad for the Blazers as they would get the Warriors pick in the upcoming draft. Uh, LeBron James did some talking uh, after the game. Jared Vanderbilt was ejected in the Lakers games after an incident with Dylan Brooks. LeBron asked about Dylan Brooks, refused to talk about Dylan Brooks. Punch it. Vando uh, obviously got the ejection tonight. You've had, you know, Dylan Brooks has had his issues uh, coming after you in certain ways. You Tonight, again, he got hit, regained composure. How do you deal with that? How do you kind of talk to Vando about things like that that are going on in the course of a game? We just got to be a better team. Uh, be, you know, we got to be better to, to win ball games. We wasn't tonight. We were here earlier in the year. Uh, we asked you about Brooks, and you said. Next you- question. Next question. Doesn't want to deal with it. Didn't, didn't want to deal with it. Uh, Dylan Brooks got the best of Jared Vanderbilt. You know, Vanderbilt gets ejected. This is what Dylan Brooks wants. You know, he flicks the back of Dylan Brooks's head as he walks away. He gets a technical foul. Second tech gets an ejection. Dylan Brooks is laughing. He walks to the other end of the court. This is exactly what Dylan Brooks wants. And, you know, unfortunately for the Lakers, um, you know, you've got this you know an effort issue and maybe a team that's moving in the wrong direction themselves does the nba need the warriors and lakers to be good for the basketball to matter because i'm i'm looking at this year and i'm going you know we may have seen the sunset on not just the warriors run but you know even with the lakers you know you look at where they are in the standings you know they're ninth the warriors are 12th yeah i don't think they need to be elite but i think that they would love to have them in the play in tournament again just like they did a couple of years ago facing off um, between the Warriors and the Lakers, the Lakers ended up winning that game in L.A. I think that is what the NBA could dream of again if the Warriors could sneak in, somehow take on the Lakers, really um, you know, market that play-in game because that, that would be a win for sure. But I don't think long run, I think there's some good teams this season in big enough markets. You look at Boston, you look at even the Knicks, like they're pretty good this season. I think they're okay with the Lakers and the Warriors not being elite this year, but I think they would love it, John. Play-in tournament, Lakers, Warriors, that would be must-see TV. Scoot Henderson and Shaden Sharp were announced as being part of the Futures game at All-Star Weekend. Meanwhile, you know, Blazers looking a little better. Last night, 130-104, to 104, they beat Philadelphia. Scoot Henderson talking about what's changed. Punch it. I think that meeting we had uh, after we had lost to OKC, um, just seeing everybody's point of view, um, seeing how it's tougher to play defense without touching the ball five, five trips in a row. And I think everybody kind of understands that. So I think the more we get the ball popping, um, the easier it is for us to, to score and the easier it is for, for us to lock down teams. Blazers win total for the season, 28 and a half, 29 in some places. They finally are kind of reaching the halfway point. They're at 14 and 33, albeit it took them 47 games to get there. Do they get the over, Stephen? Are they a threat to win 29? Or is this just a team that is going to kind of muddle along and be happy to finish 14th or 15th in the uh, Western Conference? No, I, th- I think if you have the under, you're still feeling really good about yourself because there's going to be, you talked about the trade deadline, 
the Blazers are going to be looking to trade some players, and I think Malcolm Brogdon's going to be either looking to trade, and he's been one of their best players, if not their best player all season long. So I think the struggle at the start of the season really helped that under, and then they're going to be playing a lot more of the young guys in Shaden Sharp when he comes back and Scoot Henderson. Scoot played well last night, but he still has struggled on the season, so I still think it's going to be a struggle for the Blazers to get to that number. I think you're feeling good if you got the under uh, 28 and a half. Tom Brady talking about the comparison between he and Patrick Mahomes. Is he watching what Mahomes is doing, and what does he think about it? Punch it. There's nothing that Patrick can do, in my opinion, that takes away from what I tried to accomplish in my career, and there's nothing that I did can take away from what he's trying to accomplish. I, I feel like I, all I tried to be was the best I could be, and I didn't, even though I had sporting idols, like I said, I could never be Steve Young. I could never be Joe Montana. Those are the guys I, I could never be Dan Marino or John Elway. These were my childhood idols. And they had incredible careers, and and they put as much as they could into their career, and I really respect them for that. And and I just tried to do the same thing. And believe me, if anybody can go out there and win seven Super Bowls, I have so much respect for them. I understand how difficult it is. I will congratulate them, and I'm going to you know give whatever it is a big hug. Yeah, look, Tom Brady is talking truth. I was thinking about Brock Purdy, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, so much is made of the starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. And it's, a, and it's a quarterback-centric game. I get it. There's a lot of pressure on a quarterback to play well. What Kansas City does on the field relies almost exclusively on Patrick Mahomes making great decisions and great plays and being Patrick Mahomes. It's a different blueprint than what's going on on the other side of the field with the 49ers in this Super Bowl. I love Mahomes' game. I'm a little conflicted because I love watching him play so much because he's so creative. He does remind me a little of Steph Curry in an NFL sense in that we see him doing some things that are unorthodox, you know, in, in throwing passes and jump passes and shovel passes and, you know, running out of the pocket and stopping and throwing the ball. Behind, you know, he does, he just, he's a very creative player. But. He's a, it's a different game that Brock Purdy's playing on the other side, who's more of a distributor. If we want to use the point guard as the uh, metaphor, he's, he's more of John Stockton than he is, you know, Steph Curry or that creativity. And, and so I think it's a very different equation. The calculus is different. I think the 49ers could win this game with Brock Purdy just being okay, just you know, an average game for Brock Purdy, the Niners could win. Pat Patrick Mahomes needs to play a great game. And and I and I think Chiefs fans know that. He needs to be like he was in the AFC title game. And if he is, it's gonna be a hell of a game. Well don't you think there's a chance if the 49ers win that Brock Purdy still doesn't get credit and it's gonna be Kyle 100%. Shanahan. And then where if the 100%. Chiefs if the Chiefs win, it's gonna be Mahomes no matter what. Mahomes gonna have an average game and they're gonna be like you look at Patrick Mahomes, such a leader. I think there's a real opportunity here for betters as well. Along those lines, usually, you know, when you look at the betting odds for who's going to be the MVP of the Super Bowl, the quarterbacks dominate that, right? You come in and it's the two starting quarterbacks. They're, you know, they're obvi- they're most often the odds-on favorite to be the MVP in the game. This might be the kind of game, if you're betting on the Niners to win the game, this might be the kind of Super Bowl where, you know, you get Debo Samuel or George Kittle or you get uh, Christian McCaffrey uh, as a potential Super Bowl MVP. Keep an eye on that because I think there's um, 
there's an there's an opportunity there because I think the media and the public are skewed to looking at Brock Purdy and going, he was the last guy picked. How good can he be? Meanwhile, Richard Sherman's saying, um, this is a seventh-round pick. Why are the expectations for Brock Purdy first-round expectations? Sherman thinks Purdy is going to lead the Niners to a win. Punch it. I think it will be different this time. I think, though you guys aren't giving him enough credit, this second-year quarterback out of Iowa State is one of those guys. Skip, he's a guy. And it's weird because the, if – Usually this underdog story is one that America loves, Skip. It's one that America cheers for, and they jump, get behind. But for some reason, we've found this underdog story to get first round, number one pick, Super Bowl champion expectations and standards, but seventh round mystery relevant credit. It's like, hey, it's a feel-good story when he wins, but when he doesn't do well, it's like, well, I mean, you see, you see, I told you he can't. He, he isn't doing this well. He isn't doing that well. He was a he was a third string quarterback last year. But I think he's going to be the difference in this game. The plays that he makes with his legs, the decisions that he makes. There were plays that Jimmy G in this game against the Lions probably would have dirted the ball, or put it out of bounds, or or just ate the ball because pressure got there, and Brock Purdy was able to make those positive plays. Keep an eye on the odds on the MVP in the game. Patrick Mahomes right now the favorite at plus 120. Brock Purdy at plus 225. Christian McCaffrey almost 5-1 to one to be the Super Bowl MVP. If you're a Niner better, it's Purdy at like 2-1. to one. McCaffrey at 5-1. to one. Devo Samuel at 20-1. to one. George Kittle at 60-1. to one. Maybe there's not a bad bet in there that, is, that isn't named Brock Purdy. Coming up, we'll talk more about the Super Bowl. Steven and I are going to talk about some of the interesting prop bets that are on the board. At 520, Ryan Gunderson, the offensive coordinator at Oregon State, will be joining us. Make an appointment. I was at Matthew Knight Arena on Saturday for the Oregon-Arizona basketball game. And I have to say it was a poor performance. I haven't. I didn't talk about it yesterday because we talked a lot about the Super Bowl and the NFC AFC Championship games. But it was a poor performance, and I'm not talking about Arizona or Oregon. I'm talking about the game operations at Matthew Knight Arena. In-game operations. I'm talking about what happens before the game, during timeouts, at halftime. Sort of the flow of the game, the public dress announcer, the MC, the band, um, you know, all the stuff that isn't to do with the basketball game, I thought affected the basketball game. And I wasn't alone in thinking this. Other media members have tweeted about it, talked about it. It was a subject of conversation on press row inside the arena. I had a couple other media members who are always there for the Oregon games who came over to me before the game, and you know Matt Prem, 24-7 Sports, being one of them, and he said, all right, I'm not going to say anything to you. He goes, I just want you to observe it. Tell me what you think. You're in a lot of arenas. And so I did. And here's what I think. I think it's evident that Oregon is behind the times when it comes to their in-game operations at the arena. Now, they're not the only school in the country guilty of this i was just a little surprised by it given that it's oregon i gotta be honest with you i expected a dynamic interesting energy filled experience and it just wasn't couple of things that happened at saturday's game 
that I think you don't see on television, but they affect the game. And I'm talking about, you know, the home court, I think, in a college basketball game can be a huge advantage. But in Oregon's case, I thought the home court cost Oregon somewhere between two and five points just because whoever was in charge of game operations does not understand the flow of a basketball game. Steven, this is going to drive you crazy. But in the first half, Oregon had a possession on the defensive end where they caused a shot clock violation by Arizona. It was a very interesting moment in that Dana Altman, as Arizona was trying to score on, you know, they were they were, uh, going towards Oregon's bench in the first half, and they're trying to score on that end of the court. And Altman on the sideline, 65-year-old Dana Altman, is in a defensive stance. He is clapping his hands. You can tell he's demanding from his team, his defense, to have a great possession. And they just locked Arizona down on the possession. And the Arizona guard who finally shot the ball as the the shot clock was about to expire shot an air ball. And there was just a tremendous roar from the crowd. The Oregon bench jumped up. Altman was celebrating. It was like a really strong defensive moment. And anybody who's ever been around a basketball team can know that that's like that can become a you know, a tidal wave for a team that plays really well on the defensive end. And, of course, you know, it was like at the time it was, I don't know what clock, what was left on the clock. It was under 16. Uh, you know, I don't know. But there was a media timeout that happened. And the arena was electric, and the fans were on their feet, and they'd just seen something great. And the University of Oregon went into a pre-produced, um, video montage that was on the video screen honoring the lives of two University of Oregon donors who died in the last year. It was a buzzkill. And it was a nice thing that Oregon was trying to do. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for that, that you know, homage to Joe McGee, who has been so good to the university, who has donated left, you know, his wealth to the university and bought season tickets for 50 years. And there's a place for that in the game operation. Don't get me wrong. But you don't air that and go to that coming out of that energetic defensive stop. And you go to who wants a T-shirt and dot, 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 music's going and the dance team's on the court. Like, you keep the energy going. Like, Arizona down on the other end was like, thank you. Like, there was a momentum shift, and you just shifted it right back by saying, let's do a memorial service during this timeout. Now, and I mean no disrespect to the people that they were honoring. I think, you know, you can do that before the game. You can do it at halftime. You can do it on another timeout where maybe the energy in the building is going Arizona's way. Like, there's a way to use that in your advantage of your Oregon. Arizona's on a 7-0 run. Time out in the building. Hey, let's go to this memorial thing that just kind of takes the energy away from wherever it was going. And that's fine. Use it. But I thought to myself when I saw that in the first half, I thought, huh, this must all be pre-produced. There's just a book, and they're going right down the script because there's no way that if I'm Dana Altman, I'm happy about you know the game operations people 
coming out of that timeout, and the energy's flowing, and we're feeling good, and, you know, wah, wah, wah. You know, that's, that was the feeling in the building. And then it happened, and happened again, and happened again, and again throughout the game. And uh, another, you know, moment where it happened, where you could tell everything is pre-produced, affected Dan Lanning, the University of Oregon football coach. This was not his fault. He was put in a horrendous position by game operations on Saturday. You know, Oregon had, um, you know, had a game in which they're playing against Arizona. It's a big stage. So the University of Oregon football team is invited to the game. And um, you've got, you've got, you know, Oregon's football team taking its place down on one end of the court. They're situate all the football players behind one of the baskets, okay? So it's set up in a way that, like, if you're watching on television, you're going to see the Oregon football team, like 90 members of the football team, in the stands. And the plan was, at halftime or whatever, during one of the timeouts, they were going to invite the team onto the court. Dan Lanning's going to take the microphone, and Dan Lanning's going to talk for a minute about the football team, the Fiesta Bowl, and spring game coming up, and all this stuff. And we've seen this over and over. It's a hype fest couple things happened. One, the football team did not bring energy. The football team was sitting down on the end of the court in the stands and looked bored. And somebody needed to go over there and say to the football players, hey, there's there's like 15,000 people in here watching you, and people can see you on TV. Like, root for your fellow athletes, because the football team was sitting on its hands, okay? And so that I do put on the football team a little bit. Like, you're going to show up there, you're going to be visible, bring some energy with you. I shouldn't have to be your hype guy. But then the second thing happened was not the football team's problem. Football team should have come out at halftime. They should have been the halftime show. So instead, they bring them out during a break in the action with about four minutes to go in the game. And Keyshawn Bartholomew, uh, Oregon guard, who uh, was playing his butt off in the game, had gone down the court and had been part of a fast break, and he ended up on the floor, laying on the floor and hurt and it looked bad it was one of those injuries where you know it looked like it was a seizing ending injury and you know today Dana Altman said that Bartholomew is uh, likely to miss the rest of the season it was bad all right and but Dan Lanning and the Oregon football team is being ushered onto the court at the other end of the court they can't see Bartholomew who's laying on the ground in agony it looks like he has a broken ankle or a broken leg I don't know what but it was bad and Lanning is handed the microphone, and he starts hyping up the spring game and the Fiesta Bowl. I don't even think he knew Bartholomew was on the ground. And it was a really bad moment and really unfair to Dan Lanning because the whole everyone in the crowd was like, this is so awkward. This is bad. you got an injured player. Like, And Lanning's going, hey, you know, the grass is damn green here, and everybody's cheering. But the guy's getting carried off the court. It was just a bad scene. Game operations. You need to get with it. You need to be able to call an audible. You need to get off the script. You need to think about game flow, and you need to bring energy. And if you're not going to do those things, just shoot T-shirts off and call it a day. I mean, you've played basketball, Steve, and you know what I'm talking about. Game operations, big stop, a lot of energy. You want to continue that after the timeout. Well, especially in college when you know these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids like they're emotional, and they're building off the emotion. So, like, yeah, you have a big time play. Let's keep the emotion going and keep it, you know, keep it up because they need that help against a team like Arizona. I'm with you, man. That's uh, it's sad to hear because Oregon 
back in the day, Matt Court was always rocking. Yes. And you would hear announcers be like, oh, during the break, the noise didn't stop. Where now it's like, yeah, it is what it is. It's just a big arena, a bigger arena, but the home court's gone away. Yeah, it's the it's the production. It's the operation. It's not the court. The court is plenty loud. It's rocking in there. It was a sellout. The game operations staff has to know that, you know, hey, we have this big memorial thing that is planned during the next timeout, but we they have to have the ability to call an audible. If there's a big defensive stop or a big offensive run and there's a ton of energy in the building, we're not going to do the memorial thing, all right? Instead, cheerleaders, you'll be on. And that takes some communication. Like somebody's got to be, you know, with a walkie-talkie going, hey, cheerleaders, be on standby. If something happens, we're just going to the, we're going to flip-flop the next two timeouts. Or the band's going to play or something. And instead, um, you know, Oregon just went along the script and plotted along. And, and why, why didn't the football team, you know, first of all, why didn't the football team cheer for the basketball team? That's weird to me. Like, I was looking over there and I was like, they're all just sitting there, like, you know, waiting to come on and do their thing. And Dan Lanning wasn't with him. He was down sitting in a different seat. And I thought, gosh, if I was a coach at Oregon, I would be over there going, guys, stop sitting on your hands. Start cheering for your your teammates. It's a bad look. Everybody's looking at you. And Oregon's football team just kind of sat there. And then the football team came out in the second half. They should have come out at halftime, but they didn't. That's a game operations misfire. And Keyshawn Bartholomew is on the ground. Oregon's football team had been in the tunnel on the opposite end of the court when he got hurt. So I don't think they saw him. I don't think Dan Lanning knew he was down. But everybody in the arena did. And Bartholomew's down. It looks like, you know, his right shoe is off. His foot did not look like it was where it should be. Like, it looked like he broke his ankle. Okay? It was bad. And uh, so bad that Infali Dante was covering his eyes. And he was laying on the court. He covered his eyes. You could hear Bartholomew, uh, Bartholomew screaming. And then you could see that he was crying. And I heard him shout. I watched his face. Obvious that he was in agony. Dana Altman walks over to him, gets down on the court, puts his arms around him, and is cradling him. Like, you know, and the trainers are trying to help him, and they're trying to get him on a stretcher, and he's refusing it. He did not want to be put on a stretcher. And they were like, they ultimately decided to carry him off the court. But in the meantime, you know, Don Essig, the voice of the arena, is saying, you know, here's Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach. Now, somebody hands Dan Lanning a microphone, and Dan Lanning is saying, hey, this is our Fiesta Bowl team. We're really proud of this team. We got our spring game coming up in April. And Lanning doesn't know that Bartholomew's on the ground. Like, if he knew that, I think he would have stopped and said, hey, let's take a moment here to recognize the player who's down there on the court who has given all of his sweat and all of his time to this program, and let's give him a big round of applause as, you know, they're helping him off the court. They were carrying him off the court. And Dan Lanning was going, the grass isn't green. You know, the grass is dang green in Eugene, you know? like, And it was just a bad moment, and I, I was cringing. Because I thought, when somebody tells Lanning later, hey, Bartholomew was on the ground while you were doing that hype speech, he's going to be like, he's going to feel really bad. And, and and he didn't know. I know he didn't know. You could tell. And it was just a bad look. And in the end, it, got, that, it sort of affirmed to me that whoever's doing game operations is just going down the script, going from this thing to this thing to this thing, and the next thing was the Oregon football team. Because in that moment... Somebody who has visual on the court, 
has got to be able to get in the ear of the person who's about to hand the microphone to Dan Lanning and go, abort. We're pushing it to the next time out. And instead, we're going to do, uh, you know, just let the band play here as Bartholomew's on the ground. We're going to show some respect for him. And if that had happened, then I think you know, it would have been a much better scene. You could have brought the football team out later. And then the football team got announced, and they took off, Stephen. They left. And so there was this big hole in the last four minutes of the game behind one of the baskets, like where there were empty seats. It just – it's somebody at Oregon – needs to pay attention to this. It's not that hard to kind of go, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to buy two walkie-talkies, somebody on the court, the MC is going to have one, somebody else who's sitting up on the press table is going to have another one, and we're going to give that person the authority to go, hey, the vibe right now, we're not feeling, does everybody want, does someone want a T-shirt? We're going to go, we're just going to let the band play and have that person be able to call an audible, and that Energy in the building changes in those timeouts. NBA teams overproduce the whole game, but they understand it. I get what they're trying to do. It's all music. It's all overproduced. But the college teams, the ones who know and get it right, I've been in hundreds and hundreds of games, know what they're doing. And Oregon right now is a little bit lost. That said, we have the 5 at 5, and Steven's going to rip through it. The five at five. There we go. Steven scanned the planet for the five best stories. Number one. Well, Damian Lillard's back in the Rose City, John. Bucks take on the Blazers tomorrow night at Moda Center. It'll be Dame's first game back at Moda since being traded to the Bucks. But the news today, Lillard was recognized at Adidas headquarters today. He, of course, is the face of Adidas basketball today. Adidas named their headquarters basketball court after Lillard. It's called Damian Lillard Court. It's the first time in 75 years the court has a name. Dame also was seen signing the center of the court. He talked to media a little bit, but Dame back in town uh, gets a basketball court named after him. Uh, I've played at that court when I was at Concordia, John. We practiced there a few times. It's an awesome It's an awesome. Uh, setup like it's a great court so it's cool that he got his name signed to it. it's cool that you know he, he's always been the face of, of Adidas but uh day back in town Damian Lillard back in town I find it interesting that the tickets are not flying off the uh stub hub and the uh, retail sites it seems as though the market is a little underwhelmed by his return and maybe there's just some exhaustion from Blazer fans who are tired of losing and maybe don't want to be there and see Damian Lillard uh you know, beat the Blazers in his triumphant return. I don't know what it is, but we'll talk more about that on tomorrow's show. Number two. What do you got? Well, some All-Star Weekend news, John. Blazer fans, get hyped. Scoot Henderson, Shaden Sharp, they're going to participate in the Rising Stars game. Features the best rookies, second-year players, and G League players. This is actually Scoot Henderson's third time in this game, John. This is the third time he's been in the Rising Stars game. So he's been a Rising Star for a long time. But bigger news for the All-Star Weekend Three-point contest between Steph Curry and Sabrina Ionescu. Challenge was put out there when Sabrina broke all the all-time three-point contest record. She got 37 out of a possible 40 points in the WNBA three-point contest. She'll go up against Steph Curry, of course, who is a two-time three-point three contest winner and NBA all-time leader in three-pointers made. Sabrina's going to shoot from the WNBA line. Steph's going to shoot from the NBA three-point line, and both players will use their respective league game balls for the contest. But it's not just about, uh, you know, competition and bragging rights uh the money will be raised for a good cause 
Every shot Curry and Sabrina make will go toward a donation to the NBA Foundation to help black communities and also Steph Curry's charity Eat, Learn, Play and Sabrina's SI20 Foundation will also receive a donation from the NBA and the WNBA. I think uh, this is great. It's sure to be greeted with mixed reviews as some people are going to love it, think this is great to see Sabrina out there competing against Steph Curry, two big personalities, WNBA, NBA. Others are going to make it into a competition in a, in a battle of the sexist, which it really isn't. Um, you know, S- Steph Curry will shoot with an NBA ball. Sabrina will use the smaller WNBA ball. Steph will have uh, about a foot and seven inches more distance at the top of the key. They're both shooting from 22 feet as the arc in the WNBA and NBA are the same in the corners. But uh, Sabrina against Steph? Give me Sabrina. I think she wins that thing, but let's see. Number three. Well, John, you wrote about the Portland Diamond Project over at johnconzano.com, and now the Diamond Project has put out a statement after you wrote that. Uh, they wrote that they are in negotiations to acquire the Red Tail Golf Course. They confirmed it, and the Diamond Project says they plan on creating the largest sports and entertainment district in the history of Major League Baseball. Uh, they also said, quote, after careful consideration of many other Portland metro area properties, we have decided that the scale, the timing, the availability, and the opportunity that this site possesses simply could not be a better fit for our project. We think this site not only put us the best position to acquire an MLB team, but will afford the Portland metro area the chance to build something truly transformative, a game changer economically and socially, end quote. That was said by uh, Craig Cheek, founder and president of the Portland Diamond Project. So uh, it looks like they're trying to get their ducks in a row here, ready to get ready for uh, Major League Baseball to Portland, hopefully. They've been in a coma, and it's bothered me that they've been so sleepy and so quiet. Need to see some action from them. Glad that they're saying that they have a plan. But, you know, as we say, show me the baby. Don't tell me about the labor pain. Show me the baby. I want to see them lock up that parcel of land, that red tail property, 164 acres. want to see them lock it down. I want to see that they have control of it. I want to see that Major League Baseball is coming to tour it. There's a whole bunch of steps that need to happen before a baseball game is played in Portland. But let's see it. But how, how big is it that they've put out an official statement saying, yes, we are doing this? Yeah, I think it's big. I mean, I, you know, I was tipped off by somebody at City Hall today who told me that, you know, the Portland Diamond Project was, you know, backing away from the Lloyd Center uh, property as, as, you know, their primary plan. Uh, that didn't surprise me. The Lloyd Center is only 27 acres. You, you know, it's hard to build a ballpark in a surrounding entertainment district when you only have 27 acres to work with. I also think the Lloyd Center had a bunch of leases that were tied to it and contracts that were tied to it. There was a lot of red tape, you know, and I think there's the, there's a ticking clock. Baseball's going to come out here in the next two to six weeks, and they're going to say, hey, we're seriously considering expansion, and here are the cities who have their act together. Salt Lake City's got their act together. It is a more evolved, more advanced, more sophisticated effort. So Portland needs to catch up, and I think this is part of of them catching up. Number five. This is actually number four, though, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll play it if that might be here. Number four. There we go. I can't get you out the hook, John. I got to call you out there. Um, Overprepared. Overprepared. The uh, coaching carousel has been a wild one, college football and the NFL. It's almost over, though. Seems like it's almost over. As there's only two jobs left in the NFL, Commanders and the Seahawks. And today... One of the top candidates, Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson, he took his name out of the running to become an NFL head coach, says he wants to stay in Detroit, stay with Jared Goff, stay with Amon Ross St. Brown, 
and keep building what they got in Detroit. So it looks like the Seahawks are going to have to pivot. They're now going to be turning their attention to Ravens defensive coordinator Mike McDonald. NFL Network's Ian Rapport said that McDonald interviewed with the organization. Now, McDonald's only 36 years old uh, as he's been in charge of the Ravens defense the past two seasons, but he seems like he's the favorite as of right now. The other candidate that the Seahawks have been talking about for the whole time has been Cowboys defensive coordinator Dan Quinn. So Seahawks looks to be locking in, hopefully, on Mike McDonald. I think people up in Seattle are hoping that's the guy over Dan Quinn. Look, I think, uh, you know, the Seahawks have been slow here. It just feels like, you know, if you're going to make this kind of hire, you need to go earlier in the process. Were they, were they waiting for Jim Harbaugh? It looks like they, you know, they, they weren't picked. Like, they're the last ones lined up with the coaching vacancies. And, you know, I think we all look at who, who had the best hire. Who do you think got the best hire? I think it's the Chargers. It's got to be the Chargers, yeah. I think Harbaugh is the number one guy, and that's who they got. And it looks to me like, you know, we're picking teams in junior high, and the Seahawks are picking last. Number five. This is a little sad story here. There was a statue honoring Jackie Robinson out in Kansas at a youth baseball facility. It was stolen last week as the statue was taken off. Uh, Someone cut the ankles and hauled it off into a truck. Well, today, officials in Wichita, Kansas, shared the sad news, saying that the fire department received a call around 840 in the morning for a trash fire at a local park. That Once the flames were extinguished, the firefighters discovered pieces of the bronze in the rubble, which turned out to be the statue of Jackie Robinson. Now, um, it was determined to be that that was the actual fire and it was not salvageable. So that statue is now uh, ruined. But city officials say they are planning on making things right again. Uh, Council member Brandon Johnson said in the press conference he will ensure a replica statue will stand outside the ballpark again. No arrests have been made at the time, and there is a fundraiser that has been set up for a replacement statue. More than $11,000 has been raised so far. End goal is hundred k but just kind of a you know sad sad thing. You know, Jackie Robinson can't be doing that to him. Yeah, you can't be doing that to Jackie. You know, it, you know, and by the way, so basically somebody steals the statue, puts it in a trash can, and sets it on fire or, you know. Yeah, or, they took it off in a truck, and then they found it in a fire in a trash can today. Were they trying to, you know, were they trying to get rid of the evidence or were they trying to make a statement about Jackie Robinson? Like that, I'm left thinking, like, I want to know more. You know, is this just somebody who took the statue and then later went, uh oh, we, uh, we made a mistake here. We got to get rid of this thing. Or is this somebody who's making a racist public statement? And I, you know, I know which I think, but I'd like to know more. That is the five at five. Uh, by the way, it, it just, man, like, who does that? There's like an uncomfortable corner of hell reserved for whoever did this. And at, they deserve you know, to go there, too. That's yeah, the thing. It's it, like, why, why do this? Like, who, what does it do? What does it accomplish? Even if you are racist and you don't like Jackie Robinson, like, what are you accomplishing by stealing the statue? I don't understand. Yeah, there it is. So. Looking at a photo of the statue now is a great statue. A lot of statues missed the mark. This one did not. It's got him in his Brooklyn Dodgers uniform. Four deuce. There you go. All right, coming up, Ryan Gunderson, offensive coordinator, Oregon State. He's joining us. What are the Beavers going to look like on offense? Gundy will tell us next. Well, Oregon State offensive coordinator, Ryan Gunderson, will be joining us uh, in this segment. Uh, the uh, former Oregon State quarterback turned coach, and offensive coordinator, hell of a story. And when you talk about what Oregon State is doing with its coaching staff, 
uh, obviously, if you are a uh, Oregon State fan, um, you uh, you know that Jonathan Smith was a reach back into the program's history, and uh, obviously now uh, Trent Bray as head coach, uh, Scott Barnes trying to uh, duplicate the uh, the same type of uh, model as he did under under Jonathan Smith by going to uh, Trent Bray. And then, um, you know, now Trent Bray, in turn, turning around and making Keith Hayward his defensive coordinator and Ryan Gunderson his offensive coordinator, um, you know, are obviously, uh, um, you know, an homage to uh, the history of the of the school and the history of Oregon State and a reach back to athletes who understand what Oregon State is about. So I get the model. Will it work? We will soon find out because Ryan Gunderson, who is uh, the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Oregon State, who uh, was a former player at Oregon State, played his football there 2003 to 2007. Um, for people who know him, uh, know that uh, he has a degree in construction engineering management. I got to ask Gunderson about that. Construction engineering management, he's got that degree. He's now using it to call plays on the offensive side of the field. So we will see uh, how, how he's putting that degree to, to, to good work. And, of course, there's a lot of people, I think, that remember Gunderson as a player and certainly remember him as a, uh, a kid growing up in the Portland metropolitan area. Uh, you know, and we talk about favorite sons. Rand Gunderson, if he uh, calls the place right, you're going to have Oregon State fans saying, that's one of our favorite sons. So uh, we'll have Gunderson on here in a moment. Um I want to ask Stephen something first, though. Jamar Muhammad transferring from Washington to Oregon caused kind of a stir over the weekend for Washington fans who saw Jabbar Muhammad leave after Kalen DeBoer decided to go to Alabama. Washington fans are calling it a betrayal. They're mad at him. What do you make of it, and how much of that can we put on how much of that can we put on uh, Jabbar Muhammad? How much of that is on the system? Do you blame the kid? No, I don't. This is this is the system that we have now, and I, we're going to see this a lot more uh, going forward. I mean, there's going to be guys that go to Oregon, that go to Oregon State, go from Oregon State to Oregon, Oregon to Washington, Washington to Oregon. Like this is going to happen, and it happens you know all over the country now. It's not just here. You know, in the Pac-12, the former Pac-12, the Pac-2 in the Northwest, it's not that. It happens in the SEC. It's going to happen in the Big Ten. It's going to happen everywhere because it's all it's going to be about all about money. And you look at you know a team like Ohio State this last season. They lose to Michigan. They've gone out and they've spent a ton of money on guys. And there's you better be you know better believe it that they're going to go after guys. It doesn't matter where they're from, whether it's Michigan, whether it's Alabama, whatever it is, they're going to go after it. So I do think that there's going to be guys. That play for numerous schools. It's, it's you know it's a smaller version of free agency. So we're going to see it more often. I just think, I think as we get farther along with it, fans are going to understand a little more. But right now, it is a little. It cuts deep because, you know, we were trying to think of this like who at Oregon left Oregon and then played them when uh, Tyler Shuck played them in Texas Tech in week two of the last season, and we couldn't really think of anybody. Like I couldn't think of a guy who left Oregon besides Thomas Tyner. And then was you know was about to play him. So I, I just think it's going to happen more often now because that's just the way of college football. But it does hurt right now. I think for fans because we're still just not used to it, and, and it's a big change right now. Yeah, I but I don't blame Jabbar Muhammad. You know, it the announcement came on Twitter. He makes the announcement. Dan Landing had tweeted something kind of cryptic. I don't know what 
it, what's come of today's world. Like I have to have an interpreter for the emojis. But Dan Lanning's tweeting something cryptic, and then Jabbar Muhammad, within you know a, a, a timely fashion, tweets that he's committed to Oregon. Immediately, the replies on social media from Washington fans are angry. People are mad at him. People are blaming him. They're calling him names. They're you know saying he's a traitor. They're saying you know. But I'm I'm looking over and I'm going, hey, his. It's not like he left in a vacuum. It's not like everything was great. The coach is coming back next season. You know, it, you know, it, it's not like the whole offense is gone. All of a Washington starting offense is gone. Kalen DeBoer is gone. Jabbar Muhammad is looking around going, I have to do what's best for me. My coach left. And so he says, I'm getting in the portal. I'm going to Oregon. Why not? I got a chance to look at what Oregon's about. And, and I kind of think there's a there's a little bit of a psychology to all this because as you sort of unpack the idea that that you know players are allowed to move around that you know you're recruited and let's just say you're Muhammad and you're recruited and you go to Washington and you go play for a national championship and then your coach leaves I think it would be a natural thing for that recruit to go you know I almost went to Oregon and we played games there. It looked like it was kind of a cool place to go to school. You know, rather than be part of a let's start all the way over at Washington with Jed Fish, who, you know, didn't recruit him, I'd like to go to Oregon and see what I can do in Eugene playing in those circumstances. And and it's no different than the mindset in the culture that young players who play club basketball or seven on seven in football in today's world, do all the time. You know, they change clubs multiple times. They go play with friends, and they change, and they go over here. And, and, and coaches will complain and say, I have no chance to build a relationship or continuity. Well, it works two ways. If uh, Kalen DeBoer is leaving and going to Alabama, you know, Jabbar Muhammad has got an opportunity to, to leave himself and go wherever he wants, like, and I don't, and I don't begrudge him that. And these coaches have relationships with all these players. I mean, you, you've talked at Pac-12 Media Day when you talk to these coaches, and especially Dan Lane. Like he's talked about, you know, you were talking about Travis Hunter, and he's like, yeah, I love Travis Hunter, great guy. Like they obviously have relationships when they're out recruiting these players. So it's not as if like they lose that relationship. Like they mm-hmm. have put time into these players. So it's not as if you know Muhammad's saying, oh, I, I have no, I know nothing about Oregon. I'm just going to go there on a whim just to you know stick it to Washington fans. That's not what he's doing. He's benefiting himself and helping himself out, doing what's best for him. I don't have a problem with it. I, I don't know how fair it is to criticize a young kid, but at the same time, like I would criticize a professional, like sometimes when they, you know, we talk, we've been talking about Dame today. Like yeah, Dame, it, literally, Dame yeah. literally asked not to play in Portland. So like, I'm not going to be happy about that. Where Jamar Muhammad is saying, I don't want to play for Seattle and Washington. I want to go to Oregon, but he's also a kid. So I want to be in some of the benefit of the doubt. I kind of think if it were only rooted in money, and, and there's a great example at Washington State. You know, you got D.J. Rodman, who decided, you know, he was going to leave Washington State and go play basketball at USC. He left for money. He left for the market. He left Pullman, Washington to go to USC, play alongside Bronny James, uh, have a better NIL deal, and be in Los Angeles. All right, it's Dennis Rodman's son. 
he had a good season at Washington State last season, decided to get in the portal and leave. Now, Kyle Smith, the coach at Washington State, didn't leave. He was still there. And he was saddled with the idea that he had a player who left for the NBA. He had two players who jumped in the transfer portal. One went to Villanova. One went to USC. And he's got to start all the way over. There were three rotation players, three starters. He's in real trouble. Kyle Smith had to go back out. He had to recruit a junior college player. He got a kid from Sonoma State playing Division II basketball, replaced um, uh, uh, Rodman. And then he went out and he found a Big Sky Conference player at Idaho who is just playing lights out. And he replaced those three lost players who left in the portal and to the NBA with a junior college player, uh, uh, a Division II player, and a Big Sky player, and he got better. Like, that's good coaching. And and I understand why Washington State fans are looking over at D.J. Rodman when they play them this season and going, you know, shame on you. We got the last laugh. You know, you chase the money, and you're playing for a, a USC team that's in the basement in the Pac-12. Do you, do you think there's ever going to be a moment where – Players realize, like, man, maybe it's not greener to go to the other side and get get all this money. Because right now I feel like we have – it's been overcorrected where now that the transfer portal is so open, it's the brand-new thing to do. Like, that's what these kids want to do. They want to get the portal. They want to see what they can get. Do you think there's going to be examples like the DJ Rodman thing? Um, there's been other examples where players leave and then it doesn't work out in their new spot. Is there going to be a spot, a time when – Players really look at it like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't leave. Maybe I should stay, and then we'll see less players in the transfer portal than we have the past few seasons. I think you're seeing some of that, and there's some isolated cases. Ron Stone, defensive end for Washington State, he was offered money by the SEC, and by teams in the SEC and in the Big Ten. He said, I want to finish what I started, but he's an outlier. His dad played in the NFL. Money's never been an issue. You know, he knows he's got a parent who's saying, hey, the, it's a long game here. You're playing a marathon. It's a long game. Stay here. You're well positioned. You know, he has a unique situation with a dad who's got some wisdom and has been through it. Not all kids, I think, would see it that way. And so Ron Stone Jr. stays at Washington State, has a great season. He's going to get drafted. And it's going to have a happy ending to it. But I just don't think, you know, right now that the majority of kids who have spent their adolescence jumping from club to club feel um, particularly anchored at one place or another. And I think it's why Washington fans, Washington fans are mad. Okay, they're already mad that Kalen DeBoer is leaving. They're already mad that DeBoer is leaving, Penix is going to the NFL, the entire offense is gone, and, you know, Jed Fish is coming in, and now they see, are they going, at least we have the defense. And then Jabbar Muhammad is like, no, you don't, <laughs> you know? And, and then the minute... He leaves. Jed Fish tweets out that he's got another recruit who's coming in as a corner, and all the Washington fans are going, well, it's better than Muhammad anyway. And you're just proving that, you know, and I'm picking on Washington fans, but it could be any fan base. They're, they're all losing their minds. That You're just proving the point. You're proving that you don't root for people anymore. You root for the jersey. You root for your team. You don't care really who's wearing that jersey because you can't trust that they're going to be with you. And they don't love it like you do, and they're not stuck with it like you can't, like you are. Fans cannot get in the portal. You cannot get in the portal and suddenly go, "I'm in the portal. I'm leaving all my Washington gear at Goodwill, and I'm suddenly going to be a Michigan State fan." You you can't do that. You, you know, if you're living in Seattle and you went to school there, you are stuck with your allegiance, and I think that's part of the frustration for fans. But if a coach leaves, Mario Cristobal goes to Miami. 
if you know Jonathan Smith goes to Michigan State, I feel bad for the players who were left behind who were recruited by those guys because they, I think, now have to look around and go, do I want to go through this? Do I want to have to go through getting another coaching staff to know me and go through this rebuild? Or if I'm going to do that anyway, do I choose to go somewhere that really wants me and is recruiting me again? Or maybe the place, like maybe Oregon was Jabbar Muhammad's second choice when he chose Washington, and he's always kind of wondered, like, you know, how my life would be different if, uh, if, I, if I went to Oregon instead of Washington. I don't know. Have you ever had the feeling that you're not where you're supposed to be? Maybe Jabbar Muhammad woke up and said, you know what, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, the love of my life is going to school in Eugene, and, you know, I owe it to myself to go, go see how different that experience is because I've done this Washington thing. I just don't understand how fans could begrudge him that kind of uh, liberty, and at the same time, uh, you know, they're wrapping their heads around the idea that it's okay for Michael Penix Jr. to do what's best for himself. It's okay for Kalen DeBoer to do what's best for himself. It's okay for fans to do what's in their best interest. Nobody's getting mad at you as a fan if you are changing employers and chasing your dreams. So let's not come down on kids or adults, as they are in the case of Jabbar Muhammad, and and say his his experience should be different than Kalen DeBoer. Is there a good way to go about it? Like, let's just say Jabbar Muhammad. Like, what what would be the ideal way to break the news that he is leaving for Oregon? Because it could be that where it's just you know just a post on social media and then Washington fans get mad about that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a Washington fan. I don't know what makes them mad. But in your opinion, is there a good way to like break that news of like I'm going to enter the portal and I'm going to my rival? I think that you could try to be as tactful as you want, and I think there's a bad way to do it. Like, you know, he shouldn't be taunting. He shouldn't be, you know, playing with people's emotions. It always bothers me, bothers me too, when we see high school kids who are about to pick their college, and there's three hats on the table in front of them. And, you know, maybe it's Penn State and Oregon and Oregon State, you know, and just to use an example, and they pick up the Oregon State hat, and they put it on their head, and then they throw it to the side and put the Penn State hat on, you know, like, I always chalk that up as a lack of maturity. But I always kind of think, like, there's a parent somewhere involved in this equation that could have stopped this and made that kid look better. You know, like, be classy about it. And and, and know, too, that even if you're classy about it, you're probably not going to p- please all the yahoos out there. And that's not your job, to please all the yahoos. But, you know, he just tweeted out, committed, and here he is in an, <laughs> in an Oregon uniform. So, uh, you know, he's taking some heat from it. All right, Ryan Gunderson coming up after the break. He is the offensive coordinator at Oregon State. We've got him on the line. He'll join us next. We were talking about native sons in the state of Oregon. Ryan Gunderson's a native son. Born in Portland. Went to high school in the area. Played his college ball at Oregon State. He's gone off into the big world where uh, he has uh, served in a variety of capacities in a bunch of different uh, programs, including with Chip Kelly at UCLA. He is now the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at his alma mater, Oregon State. Ryan Gunderson joining us right now live via satellite. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, all right, when I talk about that story, full arc, okay? You were a baby-faced college kid. I was covering your games. I saw this kid. Nobody, I, I never looked over and thought, that guy's going to be the play caller one day. I'm not shocked at it, but what does that feel like to you to kind of come full circle that way? 
Yeah, you had hair then, I think. <laughs> um, is- no, it's it's not something I ever necessarily uh, you know expected to happen, but um, I'm really excited. My family's really excited, and uh, it's just kind of an opportunity. Obviously, there's been you know what's happened over the last two years in college football. Um, but it's kind of an opportunity to run to the fight and, and get back into it and, and fight for something you believe in and something you love and um, do it with a lot of people that I care about and know and um, really am excited to work with. You went off. You were working at San Jose State with Brent Brennan, Chip Kelly at UCLA. Those are good offensive influences. What did you learn from those guys? Uh, just different styles. Uh, I think when you talk about offensive football it's you know there's the specifics of what you do um and what everybody does i i really believe is pretty similar what people do is you know that you dress it up in different ways but how you do it and why you do it i think those are kind of the things i've learned i spent so much time with coach riley uh, when i was young um and then now i'm kind of you know, I've just been around some different styles now, what I learned at San Jose State. Uh, and then with Chip the last three years, I feel like I've got kind of a, a pretty broad view of everything and, and what I like and how I want to do it. Um, but just kind of doing it in my own image and in the way that I think is best. Yeah, you talk about the good fortune you've had, the offensive minds you've been around with Danny Langstorff and Mike Riley who, by the way, called you, those two guys call you their first child. And then and then you get, you know, Brennan and the influence there. You get Chip Kelly. I think that's valuable there. Um, I mean, it's really fortunate to, you know, it wasn't like you were playing for a defensive-minded coach and you got creative offensive minds. And so how do you blend that all together with your own style and what you want to call? Um, I think that's what, what... – I like and what I think is best for an offense, but but probably more specifically, what I think is best for quarterbacks to or easiest for quarterbacks to execute at a high level. Um, kind of taking all those pieces, uh, you know, it, it can be a play, but how you teach it can be totally different from system to system. So um, teaching them kind of in the image and in, in the way that I think is best for quarterbacks from the quarterback's point of view, um, I, I think that's kind of how I'll blend it, but it'll be a quarterback-friendly system um, that gets the ball out of their hands, helps them make quick decisions. But a lot of it is, you know, this play is the same as this play. It's it's the same thing, but you dress it up in different ways. Now, I, you know, I know that you mentioned family being proud of you, and certainly uh, you must have heard from a lot of former teammates and players. Uh, I'm curious, too, about you as a player. Go back and think about yourself as a player. Could could Ryan Gunnarsson, the quarterback, have played for Ryan Gunnarsson, the coordinator? <laughs> um, I, I would tell you probably not. Um, you know, I I think just – but college football has changed uh, a ton since I played. The, there are a lot of guys like me that, you know, you, it was were you a thrower and could you throw it first and foremost. And um, I wouldn't say that's totally changed. Like, you still got to be able to throw it, but the athleticism uh, as it relates to the quarterback position has has certainly, um, you know, it's blossomed, and, and you're going to get a lot of, you know, 
athleticism at the position now, and I think that's what I'll be looking for when we look for quarterbacks. Just do they throw it well enough, and are they athletic enough? And then after that, it's a sliding scale. You know, if, if you're just good enough as an athlete, then you better have a rocket arm and be really accurate. If if you're a dynamic playmaker with your feet, then you just got to, you know, are you a good enough thrower? You don't have to be elite. So it's a little bit of a sliding scale once you once you meet those minimums, in my opinion. Is it too early to evaluate your quarterback room? Yes. So no more questions on them. No. I, <laughs> I know what they can do just off of the film that I've seen. Um, you know, varying levels of experience. Uh, I think we have some, you know, the way that it's been explained to me in the past, there's some different spices in the cabinet. There's, mm-hmm. there's some different flavors, some guys that play with different styles, and that's fine. Um, we've got really smart guys in the room, really good coaches, and I think we can blend it to who the quarterback is that gives us the best chance to, to win, um, score points. So, uh, yeah. All right, you go from your GA time at Oregon State into the director of player personnel role, and I think it's really interesting, both at Oregon State and at Nebraska, before you go back to really being a quarterback coach and now a coordinator, what did you get from that player personnel experience that you can use now in this world of the portal and NIL? I think it was just, you know, seeing, I think I got a pretty good feel during that process of not just the offensive side of the ball and not just quarterbacks, a good feel for looking at all different types of positions, um, getting a good feel for the recruiting process and what works in different situations, whether, you know, geographically or positionally or or how all these, those things work. Um, You just kind of get a really broad feel for the whole deal. You're not like now, or, or when I was just a quarterback coach, you're very siloed. It's quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. It's not the big picture, which is, is I got a really good feel for that when I was in uh, DPP. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting too, because you, you know, then you start thinking about players and positions in other terms and, you're not just pigeonholed to one uh, one position. Ryan Gunderson with us. He is the offensive coordinator at Oregon State. Um, what do you want to be when you were a kid? When you grow up, you know, what, what are you telling your parents? When I grow up, I want to be. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. I feel like I'm old now. I don't. I always really wanted to play football. And yeah. to be honest with you, I didn't play football until I was a freshman at Central Catholic. I love yeah. all sports. I love basketball. I love baseball. I love football, but I never played it because I was too dang big. Um, I didn't really want to play offensive line and have, you know, the two stripes on your helmet that said you couldn't touch the ball. Uh, so I played soccer. I loved soccer. Um, really enjoyed that growing up. So I don't know. I just wanted to play something. I wanted to be a professional athlete. I was just kind of a sports junkie growing up. Um, I, I think I really like competing. Uh, so, and, and that's, you know, you still get – that's why I think a lot of us coaches coach is you still like that feeling of the competition, of the way it makes you feel and, and how great winning is. And when you lose, how much it makes you want to get back to winning. Um, it's it's infectious and it's it's hard to, to stop. I think that's why you see a lot of coaches have a hard time stopping because that, that competition is, is really fun. Do you then – yeah, you know, if we're talking now to kids who are in parents who have kids who have, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, do you advocate for parents? Let's just pretend that 
we're your next door neighbor and we say, Ryan, like, should our kids specialize in a sport or should they just be playing everything? Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you, John. I, I don't think there's many coaches out there that would tell you, hey, you need to specialize. Uh, I've, I've never said that, and I've never heard a coach say that. I look for quarterbacks that play basketball or, you know, oh, he's the starting point guard on the basketball team. That's a really good thing. Um, I, you know, there's kids that I'm recruiting that are baseball players. I, I think those kids that compete year-round and don't just train – Learning how to be a competitor and compete and want to win, uh, I, that's why. And then some people say, oh, seven on seven. I don't really like seven on seven. Well, I think it's good when a kid goes out in the spring and competes. And, and maybe it's not football. and It's not football in the sense that, that we, you know, work at it. But it's, it's just the ability to compete and to want to compete all the time. I think that's really, you know, a big part of playing sports year-round and playing different sports. What did it feel like to you, you know, ever after having gone to Lincoln, Nebraska and in California, you know, both at San Jose State and UCLA, what did it feel like for you to you and your family to get back to the state of Oregon? It's awesome. I mean, it, Corvallis is you know, it's home and so many things have changed, but at the same time so many things are exactly the same and it's still got that feel to it that I remember from when I was in college and when I worked there, um, you know, and, and Oregon has always been home and it'll always be home. It's my wife is from Astoria. Um, we met at Oregon state, but at the same time, like we've maintained Oregon as kind of our home base. Both of our families are still there. Uh, we, we've got a place in sisters, Oregon. So we go to sisters. We have more than a few days off than we're, you know, we were hopping in a car or, Excuse me. I was hopping in a car and driving the dog up to Oregon, and <laughs> my wife was flying with the kids. So um, Oregon's always kind of been home, uh, but it, it just feels good to be back and, and I'm seeing family more often and seeing way more familiar faces. Now, people don't may not know that your wife Hillary worked it, for Mike Riley in the football offices, and I'm going to guess that was your your first introduction, your first brush with her. But she was the one that used to call us when Coach Riley would be on the show. It was always Hillary. Hey, I got Coach on the on hold for you, and lo and behold, it's it's kind of like this thing has come together, and this is a family. Like, you know, did you know the first time you saw Hillary? That's that's her. That's the one. Um, sure. I she's probably listening <laughs> right now. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, we worked. We worked pretty closely with each other for a long time, and um, you know, it's just she's. Uh, as you can probably tell, she's the very organized one. She kind of runs the house. She's got her finger on the pulse of everything that happens there, so she kind of keeps me in line. Hey, you got to do this, you got to do that, and, and helps me focus on the football part of it. And But, yeah, I'm lucky to have her. Look, uh, Gundy, uh, really excited to see what you're going to do on the field. We've known each other a long time. It's going to be fun to see what you do. Uh, love having you on, of course. Your dad and – your family have done so many good things. For people who don't know, Ryan's dad, Dave, has got the Hopscotch Foundation, raising and helping kids that aren't eating in schools. We're just about out of time, Ryan, but I'd love to get you back on once you get an evaluation of the team and, and kind of get a better idea of what you see out there. But really excited to have you on and, and uh, excited to talk to you throughout this process. I thought you were going to ask me if I wanted a weekly segment there or something like Let's that. Let's do it. Let's do it. Weekly yeah. segment. 
And we'll have it, you know, your dad Hopefully can sponsor I call it. In on time. <laughs> we'll do it again. All right, Gundy. Thank All you, right. man. Thanks, John. Appreciate All right. you. There he is. No net kid. He was playing for crying out loud. I, you know, I'm baby-faced Ryan Gunderson. He's now the offensive coordinator at Oregon State. Not baby-faced anymore. Um, look, I think it's going to be exciting to see what he does with the offense and to see what Trent Bray does. we got to get Bray back on the show as well. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time. Have a good time. We'll catch you tomorrow.